100, 100, 100, 10 times 10 equals 100. There are 100 cents in a dollar. A football field is 100 yards. There are 100 senators in Congress. The sum of the first nine prime numbers is 100. The boiling temperature of water is 100. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born. The number of tiles in a standard Scrabble set is 100. The temperature of the human body is 98.6 degrees, which is close to 100. 9 plus 8 minus 6 is 11, which is 89 away from 100. Now, all right, all right. See, now you're just pulling that out of your ass. That is an ass pull, my friend. What about 100 Men and a Girl, huh? So what? It's a 1937 musical comedy film starring Deanna Durbin. So is Three Men and a Baby. I don't like the men in that, but I like the baby. 100 is everywhere, man. movies with rob and zach this is a podcast about cinematic oddies where we discuss any media that is too bizarre normal or off kilter for contemporary audiences occasionally these projects gel most times they crash hard into the realm of obscurity join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp i'm hester and i'm shaw before we get into this i mean okay how about this zach we just throw a few out there to get the audience excited, but then okay. we have some administrative business to go through. Hester Shaw, Hester Shaw, old tech, old tech, old tech, old tech, old tech, old tech, Hester Shaw, Valentine, old tech, Hester Shaw, Shield Wall, Shield Wall, Fang, <laughs> Traction Gang, Anti Traction League, Hester Shaw, Hester. <laughs> Ah! Oh, okay, Glowing okay. green eyes. <laughs> Old tech. If you want to <laughs> continue this, maybe hit this, hit the skip 15 seconds or whatever you got. 15 maybe skip- minutes, Rob. 15 minutes. Well, I was gonna say hit the 15 second button like continuously until you hear that come back up. Then you know you're you're good. But we do have some, <laughs> I would say we have two points of administrative business to take care of today before we get into the gloriousness of Hester Shaw. The first is uh, that, uh, you know, it's kind of maybe goes along with the second. But uh, Zach and I, of course, last Thanksgiving or um, November, the month and the and the holiday just blend together for me. Uh, we did Fansgiving slash Fanvember. We thank everybody who sent in requests. We've been getting some other requests since then. So I think, one, we want to open the door and say, hey, you can always send us requests. We might not get to them till November, so what, 10 months from now. Uh, but still, you can always throw in there. Remember, everybody gets one. But as we were collecting these, we started to keep track of who has requested certain things. So when we eventually do get to November, we can you know, remind ourselves who to contact for snacks when we pick movies. And there's one that we can't place. So if any of our listeners, uh, if you remember requesting trading places from us, the Dan Aykroyd and... Uh, eddie murphy movie please let us know who you are through through comment through uh, email just so we can fill in the spreadsheet and hopefully we'll get to that one day and now probably the more important order of business syndication right zach because this oh, is yeah. episode 100 we finally made it to triple digits which is pretty cool 
Um, I I was the one, I think, out of the two of Zach and I, I barely cared about this because I care more about the yearly extravaganzas. But Triple Digits is pretty cool, and we can finally be syndicated. So now, I don't want to hear anybody out there, you included, Zach, that podcasts don't get syndicated. We're going to start that trend, even if it doesn't exist right now. But I think the very important question is, do we want to sell our podcast in syndication or do we want to go for barter syndication? Did you have any thoughts on this, Zach? What form of syndication we wanted to carry out with Cinemodities? Oh, I guess there's a third option because in the 100th episode of Aqua Teen Hunger Force, Shake, the, the premise of the episode is Shake going to studios trying to get syndicated and he just screams syndication at executives. So we could go that route as well. <laughs> Can we try that? Can we try screaming at people? I would love to go on Shark Tank and just scream syndication. Just that. That's our whole pitch, is just screaming syndication. What do you think? I like it. And then maybe we have some champagne for the sharks, because that usually seems to work well. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what were you thinking? How, if, if, fine, if barter syndication, what should we barter? Because I don't know if we have... We well, we don't really have any advertisements. Maybe we could barter with advertisements for the restaurant, the completely real restaurant that makes money, or is supposed to make money. Uh, and if it's financial syndication... How much would you want to sell our episodes for? Uh, this was, this is what we were given a lot of thought to this last week, folks. <laughs> I don't know, Rob. I think we should sell it for some, like maybe like an old timey uh, toaster with the spring in it, <laughs> the sunbeam or whatever it was. Yes, the classic. <laughs> uh, so you want to sell it for some old tech? Do we need old tech? Don't we have like, isn't old tech in the movie the old the tech we have now? <laughs> well, Rob, come on, this podcast is going to last forever. Well, true. It's gonna, it's, gonna, it's gonna last millennia, so I think we should stock up on it now, so that in a thousand years, we're in the roaming cities. We will be, we'll be the kings. We can be the the Lord Mayor of London. Oh, okay, okay. We the Lord keep it Mayor of the Cinematis Restaurant. Yes, <laughs> Lord Mayor, absolutely. Okay, and you know, now that I think about it, if we talk about old tech in these days, that actually is kind of you know pertinent because I'm sure Zach. I'm sure I've told this story, maybe not in the podcast. Whenever my parents would have uh, yard sales, my dad would always take out an ad in like the local newspaper, uh, you know, in like the um, whatever the whatever they're penny, called, penny saver, or something. Yeah, like that. yeah, that type of stuff, just to like advertise that we were having a yard sale, and it would have the location, have the time, and every time he would do this, like thirty minutes before, up to the time that was stated on the article a bunch of random people would show up just asking for old tools. And no, I never knew why. I think my dad kind of knows why because he's more into the mechanic and machinery stuff. But So that's kind of like old tech, right? People were looking for old tech then. They're looking for old tech in London in a year that's never stated in the movie. So, okay, I can get behind this. We're bartering for some old tech. I like it. And maybe, maybe we sell it to, like, what, Bravo, and so after they play Law and Order Criminal Intent, they play an episode of Cinemodities. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> but yes, uh, 100 episodes. This is episode 100, the first with triple digits. Did you have anything to say about episode 100 or getting to this land milestone before we jump into the extravaganza for today, Zach? Uh, no, I think uh, other than just saying that the film we'll be discussing today is one that we deliberately plan to coincide with this, considering yeah. it is such a moment momentous occasion. Yeah, okay. Well, then then let's get right back into it. Hester Shaw. Hester Shaw. Old tech. Old tech. Old tech. 
Valentine. The American deities. <laughs> Quantum <laughs> energy device. Medusa. The shield wall. Kill switch. Crash <laughs> drive. <laughs> Hester Shaw. Hester Shaw. Oh, Dr. Twix. <laughs> oh, Dr. Twix is the greatest character name in the history of cinema. Oh, oh, absolutely. So, yes, without further ado, we are discussing something that we've briefly mentioned, I think, on many other episodes, it, albeit maybe through just the lens of Hester Shaw, Mortal Engines. And this is, of course, wrapping up our first series of 2020, the Incomprehensible Blockbusters series. And this is another one that I think we're going dis- to discuss how it's incomprehensible, but I want to come right off the bat saying it is incomprehensible in content. This movie is incomprehensible. Would you agree, Zach? Yeah. Um, uh, should we explain how this movie got, how we found this movie? Or Yeah, I, you're, I you're think not, so. You're not wrong. This movie is, like, I watched it a second time, and I think going into it a second time, I, I felt a little bit better, but still, like, it's, Things happen in this movie that just like they're kind of ex- they're hinted at like very early in the film. Yes. Then we make hard we make hard right turns, much like Hugo Weaving, and we go straight for a wall that we tried blowing with our gi- blowing up with our giant purple like space wand. Yes, yes. So I'm glad I'm glad you bring up that you've seen this twice now. Um, I I've seen I watched this th- at three separate occasions. I read the book and then I watched it again. And now I kind of think I know what's going on. Just kind of, though. (laughs) That's a lot more than most people. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But yes, I think we should get into how we found this movie, because if I remember correctly, it was you who introduced me to it um, way back back when, last year, right? Or two years ago, maybe last year. Well, technically, like what? Like 13 months ago, roughly? Yeah, I'm still in a time vortex. I don't know what... I'm glad I didn't mess up saying 2020 earlier. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Mortal Engines came out in December 2018. I can remember the first time I ever heard of this movie. It was during December of 2017, where it was a preview in front of The Last Jedi. And I remember seeing – because it's always fascinating when you have movies that provide previews a full year in advance. I've always found that as a fascinating concept where there's really – more or less, the film is still like not even like a quarter baked, and you're already <laughs> providing marketing materials. Yeah, because so much can change between then and the release date. So I remember watching this, and basically the trailer, the teaser, is the intro, basically the opening scene of the movie of the little town being swallowed by London. Oh, and the only part of the movie that I found exciting. <laughs> the, the only part of the movie that's digestible, because at least it, it, I can just, what's the word, storytelling terms, you can just tell what's happening. Yes. It's it's the giant uh, uh, civilization consuming the smaller one. Like, it, on visual, it's the only part of the film that works on a visual level. Um, but I remember watching that being like, wow, this is really neat. Like, again, I've never heard of this before. I'm like, wow, okay. And then, like, a year later, you're, I'm like, oh, what is going on? Like a year later, I was just as, just as in the dark about it as I was in December 2017. Mm-hmm. So eventually, I came across a copy of it. Did not watch it. I shared it with Rob. Rob watched it before I ever did. And the whole time, Rob's just screaming things at me, much like him and I did at the very beginning of this episode. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> what, what, what does any of this mean? Very similar to like uh, Gili and I Want to Go to the Bay Watch. Rob's just screaming these quasi-non-sequiturs at me. And I watched the movie. I think I'm going to get about halfway through. And I'm like, Rob, 
like like what is this? I can't handle this. And he's <laughs> like, Did you get to the green did you get to the Terminator dad yet? And I'm like, What? He's like, Oh buddy, you haven't even experienced this movie yet. If you haven't gotten to Terminator Dad yet. And then so a couple months further go by, and I finally finished the entire movie. And I am just like, I think I, the movie ended. I'm like, what? Yeah, what? that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> and so we knew we had to talk about it. this film. Unlike Tomorrowland, it was it was it's relatively fresh. It was like, OK, we have to talk about this sooner rather than later. And of course, this is this is an incomprehensible blockbuster. But I think it's fair to say this could fit into a lot of different series. Oh, uh, yeah. I think uh, when you were filling in some of our series in the spreadsheet, this appeared in three different ones, if I remember correctly, because I define them all. I just control F and check and cross them all off. And it was um, incomprehensible blockbusters. I think it was also colossal flops. And there was one other I can't remember, but colossal flops is certainly at the front of my mind after the research I've done into this movie. I think it might have been also in failed blockbusters at one point. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, because we did that. What was that? Was, was that March of last mm, year? Maybe March or April. Yeah, March. It was March because April was the Avengers uh, Endgame experiment. Um, yeah, yeah I think it just came out on Blu. <laughs> I guess it just came out on Blu-ray in March. So that was my idea. Maybe we could <laughs> we could kind of hit the ground running with it. Um, but no. So yeah, Mortal Engines. I watched it a second time in preparation for this, and um, I got to like the third act once they like realize what's happening with the wall. And my brain, I guess, completely forgot about everything that was happening. Okay. <laughs> and I, I, Sounds and right. I, and I want that even at the second viewing, at the very end of the film, I was still going, what? Yeah, yeah, it truly is incomprehensible. And like I said, you know, I watched it three times trying to get a handle on it. The first time I had the same response as Zach. I think I was like, this is insane. I didn't understand anything that was happening except the Terminator dad part, which is still insane to me. It's the only part that other than the beginning that we'd talked about where there's like a little bit of a story that makes some sense. And then it just goes right off the rails again. Um, I think the second time I watched it, I was trashed and I barely remember it. And it was just kind of like visually stimulating. And then I watched it again. Cause we were talking about it for some reason. And I was like, okay, I can, I can crack this movie. And I still didn't. So when we finally decided we were going to talk about it, incomprehensible blockbusters, I was like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to watch it again until I've read the book that it's based on. And this is another thing I want to bring up when Zach first shared this with me. He was like, this is crazy. I've never heard of this before. And I'm like, I've heard of the book. And he was like, there's a book? And I proceeded to tell them that there's actually four in this series of books. It's the Mortal Engines Quartet, as it's called, written by Philip Reeve. And then I think for the next, the entirety of the year 2019, every time this would come up, I would mention the book. And Zach would act just as surprised as the first time I told them that there was a book. <laughs> It was, that is it was, how incomprehensible this is. <laughs> this that wasn't acting, folks. I was genuinely. I'm like, I think even in the last couple of weeks you brought it up, and I'm like, there's a book. Yeah, I think. The, and that last time, I was like, God damn it, Zach! I've been telling you this every few months now for a year. <laughs> yeah, I, my brain cannot wrap itself around this movie. Yeah, and and so like I said, I did do that. I read the book. Um, so we'll get into a little bit. I think when we discuss the movie, how you know they change from the book and how you know the book and kind of movie compare and uh i think overall i do want to say i don't like either of them <laughs> now that i have some type of a some some let's just make the audience clear on that i have some semblance semblance of what this movie and book is about i have a little bit 
I don't really enjoy either of them. And I think this is a good place to say most of my notes for the movie are me describing something that happens in the movie and then a period and then the phrase, fuck you, movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, <sighs> this movie. Uh, so, so, okay. okay I'm going to do this. I, I think... I think the one, what I was about to say, something that we have to do, just to keep our own sanity, every now and then, when, you know, things are getting a little too crazy, we should take a Hester Shaw break, right? A Hester Shaw break. Hester, okay. And we just say Hester Shaw, we get it out of our system. That's because, a safe word? Uh, it, it's it's kind of like the meditation phrase. It's our mantra. Oh, okay. You know, it calms us down, I think. Um, I, I guess before we get into that, while I was reading the book, because talk, we're going to talk about the differences now that I've read it between the movie and the book, but... One thing that carries over from the book to the movie perfectly, everybody loves this girl's name. It is said even more in the book oh, really? than it is in the movie. It's crazy. And so I was coming up with like all these other names to call Hester Shaw. And I think the one that I, I want to point out, because I think you're going to like it too, it's a Star Wars reference. At a certain point, I started calling her Hester Jetster. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so we should have some Hester Shaw breaks. Hester Shaw, we just calm ourselves down. But I, I think the best place to start is just the background of this film, right? Because maybe it's not something Zach thought of, but after reading the book, kind of seeing them, I see the movie now as squandered potential. Like, I definitely think they could have done something interesting with it. And hell, from, from everything I've read, they had great people behind it. You know, they had the people who worked on and uh, Peter Jackson's team. It's directed by Christian Rivers in his directorial debut, which is probably some of the issue with it. But he collaborated on, you know, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and even Dead Alive or Brain Damage way back in the day. It was adapted by the people from book to screen by the people who did the Lord of the Rings. And even though Zach and I aren't big fans of those, um, that they have critical acclaim, and it seems a bunch of people like those. So, and it's a good concept too. And I think that's something I want to ask Zach: it, the steampunkiness, or the as they call it in the book, in the movie, the municipal Darwinism of traction cities. Oh, pfft. oh, that's so freaking pretentious. It is pretentious, but there's something there, like b cities eating other cities. Like that's that's an idea, at least. You know, it might not be the greatest idea, but you could do something with that. Hell, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, it's better than oh, little kid's a wizard. Let's make seven books out of that. I, I would take cities eating cities any day over Harry Potter. That okay? As I was watching this, I couldn't help but get that Harry Potter vibe. Oh yeah, but. Uh, part of that too, like yes, Harry Potter gets boring after a while because like it's just the same thing over and over again. You don't have to kill one person; you have to kill one person seven times. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, okay. It's like it, J.K. Rowling was like, "Hmm, video games. The bosses have bars of health. How do I make that into a story?" It's like, shut up. We've seen it before. <laughs> Please direct all your Harry Potter uh, frustration to Rob. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> um, but no, but at least Harry Potter has some level of charm, and all the actors feel like care. Like the actors are actually portraying characters. Sure. I think I think it should be noted that Mortal Engines is the first film in cinematic history that's ever cast cardboard cutouts to play the characters. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, they're everybody's unknown, right? Except Hugo Weaving, but like. Hester Shaw and, and Tom Natsworthy are played by people that, you know, you never heard of. And when you click on their uh, their works, it's like one or two things. 
Well, that too, but at the same time, though, they have the charisma of a piece of cardboard. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, and I, I guess that's kind of maybe the inexperience is where I was coming from with that. But no, you're, you're absolutely right. They are just blank slates almost. And plus, every character in this looks the same. I, I, you have Guy McFace, and then you have quasi-bad guy McFace, and then you have guy who works on the lower levels McFace. Oh, his name is Bevis. <laughs> I, I don't know any of these characters' names are. His, his, I only know it from the book, so that's I'll, I'll try and keep keep you informed, Zach, but they are all Guy McFaces. But I love the fact that his name is Bevis. It's Beavis. Is... Yeah, it's Beavis without the A, so it's Bevis. <laughs> Bevis, okay. Then we have Hester Shaw, who you're going to... Uh, if it weren't the fact this movie's two hours long, I would do a super cut like I did with Carly Beth and just have every single time her name is said in the film. Oh, yeah. I kept a count from, from Shrike, which is Terminator Dad. He says Hester Shaw seven times in this movie. And that's only just seven? that one. Ca- only, only seven from him. I think Hugo Weaving says it a lot more. Okay. But it's, it's a lot. It's like every five minutes they remind you of the character's full name. <laughs> I guess that's one of my biggest complaints with this movie is that, like, yes, the, the there's there's nothing to latch onto here. Like, it's this is a sensory overload. The movie. Oh yeah, that's it's, all it is because everything is from different sources. Like you said, Harry Potter. There's so much of the of like the big epic, you know, at the end, like the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit stuff. You got so much Matrix involved here. Oh hell, um, Anna when Anna Fang shows up, the anti-tractionist in the red suit with the ship. Like her, it's so weird. Her, she comes on a seat, and her first line is, "I'm 19 years too late from the Matrix. Does my outfit still work?" <laughs> <laughs> she has the She's wearing like, the know. same glasses I as Niobe from I the know. Matrix. It's ridiculous. I, I know. Oh my god! Okay, even at the end, we have some Star Wars. We have a trench run. Oh, yeah, it's like yeah, it's like this is. Oh my god! This the problem though is like I think I've made it loud and clear on this podcast. I love big spectacle movies that like bomb or just incomprehensible. Oh yeah. It, this this might be the one that breaks me. Because <laughs> as I as I was watching this, at the end I'm like, I I never want to rewatch this again. Like there's nothing of substance here. Even like as I like, certain parts of it, like like, do we want to try to break down the plot or should it just be like everybody wants like Hugo Weaving wants to kill Hester Shaw yeah, Hugo Weaving wants to kill Hester Shaw, and he wants to destroy I, the I get, wall. Excuse yeah, me. I, so the main, like the main bad guy's motivation is he he runs London to some extent. Hugo Weaving is Thaddeus Valentine, runs London to some extent, and he doesn't like that there's anti-tractionists, which are just regular cities that don't move <laughs> and don't eat other cities. He doesn't like that. And what he wants to do is he wants to break down the shield wall to get into where all these cities are to eat them for resources. So, so that's his motivation. Hester Shaw is angry at him because he killed her mother because she was an anti-tractionist, which the movie does not make clear in the fucking slightest. No. In the movie, in the movie, Hugo Weaving kills Pan- her name. So Hester Shaw's mother is Pandora Shaw. Yeah, and- okay, I... <laughs> <laughs> that kill I almost killed me. I heard that and I'm like, like I guess we should say that every character in this story or movie is like YA like dialed up to a thousand percent. Oh, oh yeah. Every and- character's name is like it's like Bella Swan. 
It's like every character's name has to be whimsical and cute. It has a nice little cute little flourish to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, kill me. Thaddeus Valentine. <laughs> What's the daughter's name? Catherine Valentine. Catherine Valentine, yep. And then uh, uh, Tom's boss at the museum, who is not a character in the movie, his name is Chudley Pomeroy. Oh, Jesus Cramity. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then oh yeah, the um the I think the bad guy McFace, Tom's rival, who's at the beginning and the end of the movie. His name is Herbert Melifant. Oh my god. <laughs> You're killing me. Bang that we talked about. The mayor is Magnus Chrome. Oh, gee. that's the Lord. It's like, like yeah, again. This movie, this is one of those movies that like I, I kind of want to beat up if it was a human being. <laughs> but like the part I knew I was gonna hate this, and I guess we should go even to like the first time I watched it, is that we have the part where we have Hester Shaw and she has her cute little like uh, periscope or whatever you want to call it, telescope, and she sees London coming. She's deliberately like trying to get on the slowest one, like the whatever you want to call it, town. Yeah, so she salt, can like it's it's Salt Hook is the name of the town in the book. Of, of course for, it is. Which for no reason they changed to Salt Salt Zaken in the movie. Like why change that? Why make it more confusing when it's only gonna be said once? Yeah, I know. Fucking and, hate it. Fucking yeah, movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. I agree with that sentiment wholeheartedly. Uh, cause then like we have Hugo weaving, like we see a control room and they're, like, oh, they're piling St. Saint- Paul's cathedral, which is the only building that survived the 60 minute war, which I can't believe we almost forgot this Zach. This movie crams so much into its two hours that there's narration over the studio logo yes, as soon yeah. as the movie starts. And it's the, I forgot about the that. whole universe. It, Shrike, the Terminator daddy, describes the entire end of the world in like 45 seconds as the Universal Studios logo plays. <laughs> Fuck you, movie. <laughs> All right, yes. Again, I agree. But the part that the part that again maybe almost certain I was gonna hate this is that we have Hugo weaving in the control room chasing down the saltville and we have like we like we hear a sound and it's like like a trumpet Lord Mayor on deck and we have this pompous bald asshole come out being like, What is it, Valentine? We have uh, 70 millitons of salt, you call it your lordness, and it's like Fire the hooks. And I'm like, yep. oh my God, kill me, kill me, kill me. It's like, it's one of those ones where I, I just, I wanted to die. And that's like the first five minutes of the movie. And it somehow only gets worse from there. Oh yeah. It, uh, it, it, and that's the thing. They try and cram so much into this, but it's not like, it's like breakneck speed. It actually gets boring at certain parts yes. while they're still trying to cram more information into our faces. It makes no sense. Yeah, like there's like this is one of those movies I feel like even though it's nowhere near as like just like bizarre as Gili, I could name moments of this like things that happen that make no sense in the movie because oh, yeah. like uh, the 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 Saltville gets like sucked up by London. Everybody cheers, and I get it. they're trying to be clever. The whole idea of the big the big what the homogenization of small towns and stuff that gets swallowed up by the big cities, mm-hmm. and we have all the people in London cheering and at one point like the the curator of the museum's like as if they've never seen like an a- what what's he call it an acquisition before yeah something like that it's madness out there you think they've never seen a chase before well it has been a while sir morning Clyde. morning dr pomeroy 
Yeah. Some weird term. Again, they're trying to be cute using a highbrow term. Yeah, that's the character that says that is Chudley Pomeroy. <laughs> why, why isn't it, Rob? Oh, God, um, that name, man. <laughs> and then, like, out of nowhere, we have, and I guess we just say that, like, we're introduced to a bunch of characters that all look the same. Mm-hmm. And, like, the only difference between Hester Shaw and Blonde Woman is the fact that Blonde Woman is a blonde and doesn't have a scar on her face. Otherwise, it's the exact same character. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like every every character is the like, we have like a dozen characters and they're all the same. Yep. Mhm. 100%. And it makes no sense because uh, all these characters or a lot of them that we set up at the beginning of the movie end up disappearing for most of the movie. Like one of my notes near the end is like, "Oh shit, I forgot Catherine Valentine's even in this movie." <laughs> and the problem too is that like even the actors they like for the three guys they all look identical to each other. Yep. Why not cast somebody that at least looks a little bit different? Yeah, yeah. They're all uh, tall, lanky British men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that's something that they could have taken from the book because they cut out – in the book, there's like oh, – there's so much government nonsense in the book. I sh- that's something I, I did want to tell Zach. They, they get hardcore in the book about like how London – and as its traction city is run, and it's run by four guilds. So historians, merchants, navigators, and engineers. And in the book, everybody, when they're born, gets put into one of these guilds, and they get, like, their guild symbol tattooed or branded on their forehead. So why oh. did they... That would have made that would have made characters... We would have known who was a historian. We would have known that, like, Tom was a story. We would have known that Bevis is an engineer. And that would have made more sense. But they're just like, no, we're not going to do that. And so it made that where I was like, because I agree with you, I can't keep track of all these characters because they come and go so often, they all look the same. And then I read the book and I was like, oh, this is how they should have distinguished them. And it would have been a cool flair. But Rob, then teenage girls won't swoon over the characters in the movie. Yes, yes. And teenage uh, girls don't like pretty men with tattoos on their forehead. Yep. And uh, I think this movie just took a, a hard stance. At saying, you know, even though we're going to cast beautiful people as our actors, we need to make sure their face is as least obscured as possible. Because one of the things that stood out to me, like, wholeheartedly, and apparently to everybody who is familiar with the book, because when I did some research and you Google, like, you know, differences between book and movie, Mortal Engines, this is the first thing that comes up. In the movie, Hester Shaw's face is a little scarred. Like, she's got, like, a scratch on her face. In the book, her face is fucking mangled. She oh, can really? barely Yeah, she can she doesn't have a nose. She's missing Rick. an eye. She does Whoa. she can barely move her mouth. And her like she is straight up disfigured in the book. And in the movie, she just has a minor inconvenience. Like you could think it's a beauty mark in half the scenes. Yeah, that again, it's like a JC Penny catalog came to life. Yeah, and yeah, I, I'm with you. It makes no sense. They all look the same. And then the only way I can start to tell characters apart is when they finally separate them. And it's like, okay, Hester Shaw and, and Tom are over about to be sold into slavery, and there's other people still on London. There's some separation there in the narrative. Like, I honestly have no memory of the plot between when when uh, Hester Shaw and Guy McFace, or I guess I should say protagonist Guy McFace. Yes. Yet what do we want to call it get toilet flushed off london mm-hmm. and then the next thing i know they're at an auction and ha- what uh fang is there that's all i remember like what does something happen there i have no memory of it whatsoever 
they uh, uh yeah it, it's so this is like we there's said, a twinkie involved yes it gets very boring when they're still cr- trying to cram all this stuff in there after they fall off london they're trying to find uh, they're trying to get back to london because tom wants to get back to london hester shaw still wants to kill hugo weaving while they're doing that they run from in another fuck you movie moment probably the worst in the whole movie like tom is like waving at some city like help us we need help and then Hester Shaw like gets them to to stop it, and then they start to like these big cities start to attack two little people, and they're running from it. And Hester Shaw is like, "Oh, they're Southies." And Tom goes, "What the hell are Southies?" And Hester Shaw answers with scabs, like "Fuck you, movie. Tell us anything." What the hell are Southies? Scabs. And a night hunt. What are they hunting? Us. But as they're running from those things, they get captured by another city that sells them into slavery. And then Anna Fang shows up. She's late for the Matrix. She takes them onto her ship. And then she takes them to the Anti-Tractionist League because apparently before Hester Shaw's mother died, she knew Anna Fang and said, after your mother died, I had to come and find you to take care of you. Sorry it took like 14 fucking years. And then it's like, you're the way to stop the Medusa machine. And then once again, it picks back up. We get all this exposition thrown into two minutes. And then Daddy Terminator shows up for the 15th time. And then they have to stop London. I think that's it. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, early in the... I guess we should also mention it that apparently the show that... Because like, I guess everybody involved with this production was either New Zealand or yep. wherever that is, Kiwis or wherever it was, that all Americans in the past worshipped minions the american deities as they call them in the movie so uh one so that when when the when the london's chasing down salt hook at the beginning we get the scene where it cuts into the museum where tom works and it's the stupidest goddamn scene in both the movie and the book because as they're like as london is rumbling to take over this town or, or acquisition this town all the items in the museum are, like, shaking around, and they have to, like, protect them all, like, hold them in place. If this is happening all the time, if London is constantly moving and capturing cities, buy some fucking straps. <laughs> Strap down the shit in your museum. It makes no goddamn sense. Why would you always have your workers just hold things in place? But, yes, the minions are shaking. All of our characters run over and hold them, and they go, oh, we almost lost the American deities. In the book, Zach... They are not minions. Oh. They are Mickey and Pluto. But then, since oh. this was not a Disney movie, they could gotcha. not use Mickey and Pluto. And they even describe them as the animal-headed gods of lost America. <laughs> Which is more... I, I, when I read that in the book, I was, like, that's more, I was like, that's more appropriate, you know? Like, Mickey is the god of America as they're concerned. But minions? That's another fuck you movie moment. Well, again, yeah, like you said, it's because Universal made this. And, and, yeah. And at least that's applicable because we, again, years ago the minions were the biggest thing on the face of the earth. So well, buy some straps. <laughs> like, why is this not strap? This is the stupidest thing to me. The I museum's know. not even on the bottom tier. The museum's like in Top the high, one of the higher class areas of London. So what? Every time London turns, they're losing objects from the museum. It's, it makes no sense to me. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we had while they're in the museum. Guy McFace is talking to Gal McFace, and oh, and, and Ex- he's explaining 
the history of the world. Yes, explaining <laughs> the history of the world to somebody who lives in the world their entire life. <laughs> and while this is happening, she's amused by his antics. And mm-hmm. then bad guy McFay shows up and says, you've been reassigned to the lower levels. By who? By me. Yeah. And guy McFace goes, oh, well, then. And then we cut back to bad guy McFace talking to gal McFace saying he'll never make it. And she goes running to guy McFace and goes, I'll help you. And all we see her do is like follow him down. He's what she scans an ID card that puts them in <laughs> yeah. front of the line. <laughs> they cut the line on like this on the tube, basically. Yes. Yes. <laughs> except, except it's a giant Ferris wheel. That's that's mass transit. It's giant Ferris wheels. And they get down there and they have giant machine they have okay this is the part that i found was i kind of laughed because of how horrible it was um to dissect and chop up the the salt mineville yep they have comically like oversized like cutting utensils like chainsaws the size of like a small skyscraper <laughs> <laughs> yes like it's a legit a, like a chainsaw on like a little wand that's the size of a mini skyscraper yeah yeah it's it's it, all those scenes with that stuff it looks i i do not like the look of this movie as a whole some little bits and pieces i find interesting like that opening scene but all that stuff with the you know when you're showing how the, the london is like taking apart this town that they ingested and they're stripping it for resources. It's like a video game cutscene. It does not look appealing. No, not, this movie is very aesthetically unappealing. Like, there's nothing unless you were really into that like steampunk look. Yeah, which is maybe like point zero 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 one percent of the world. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a good chance you're gonna be repulsed by this. Oh yeah, absolutely. So that that whole scene, I, I have so many fuck you movie moments when. <laughs> When Tom and Catherine are talking and he's giving the whole history of the world, he's like, oh, they, it's like old people. So in the movie, it is, it's quantum energy that destroys the world in the 60 minute war. In the book, it's nuclear weapons, which makes, makes way more sense. Like Medusa is totally independent of the 60 minute war in the book, but he's describing this to Catherine and Catherine like says in the stalest way possible, how could a society with such, such technology be so stupid. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. How can a society so advanced, so scientific, be so stupid? No more stupid than people today. They just had far worse weapons and far more sophisticated control systems. And then they go down to the um to to the 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 intake part where Tom has to go search through Salt Hook's remnants to find stuff for the museum. And we get the big shot of all the people from Salt Hook like being funneled into London and we get like what the banner or like the sign says welcome to London and it's all very drab and dreary and you and you can clearly hear that there's some announcement going on in the background but for the entire scene it's all unintelligible you can't hear what they're saying until the last line when like they just crank up the audio on it and you very clearly hear Children may be temporarily separated from their parents. Yeah. Fuck you, movie. Yeah. Like, fuck you. I, I get enough of this shit in Law & Order SVU and I hate it. I don't need it in this. Failing to follow instructions. No weapons allowed. You cannot do this. No weapons. For inspection. Be aware, children may be temporarily separated from parents. Yeah, they thought they were being clever. Oh God, that that's a good that's that's our uh, pull quote for the box. They thought they were being clever. 
<laughs> oh my god, yeah, I heard that too. And like, and it's just oh, everything about this movie is bad. Like, this is one of those ones where like this is kind of like made to order for me, and I watch it and I'm like, like I guess there's only two tragedies in life. Getting what you, I'm sorry, <laughs> not getting what you want and getting what you want. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of those because, like, even like we go, we see Guy McFace and he's digging through the piles and he's like, Mr. Engineer, you almost crushed this to- like the toaster, the sunbeam toaster. Yep. And it's like, I can't believe you would have done this. You should be reported for this. <laughs> and you lost the knob. <laughs> yep. Stop. No, 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 stop. Stop. <laughs> That is a Sunbeam TA200. That's a classic radiant-controlled double-slice toaster with automatic bread ejection. Like, we have to. And you've lost the knob. And then, out of nowhere, despite the fact that Hugo Weaving is, like, second in charge of this entire, like, contraption city locale, he's inexplicably... At essentially, imagine if the president of the country hung out at Ellis Island in the 1920s. <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. what it is. That's <laughs> what it is. And he's down there and he's doing the thing where like, huh, Guy McFace, you know what it is. We'd be honored to have you on the higher ranks. Well, really, so he's like, he's doing his tiny Tim impersonations again, dialed up to 11. Mm-hmm. And out of nowhere, uh, Hester Shaw sees... Hugo weaving and starts like having like the inner monologue being like I will do this to like like avenge my mother and yep. she pulls a dagger like we like did they ever show because we see her hiding the dagger when she's going to the checkpoint but do we ever see where she ends up hiding it I think it's on like her leg like her bootstrap or something like that. Oh, that I thought that's where she originally had it then she puts it somewhere else oh yeah it could be that she moved it yeah I'm not that's sure. what I thought because we see her put it like in her ankle like slot yeah and then she yeah. takes it out and then we never see what she does with it and then she just has it again yeah sure <laughs> so, sure and then she goes up and she's like like whispering her like murder thing to Hugo weaving she shanks him. Like mm-hmm. in the abdomen, like legit, like not just that she kind of nicks him, she plunges the dagger oh, yeah. into his abdomen and runs away. Or technically, she she stabs him, but Guy McFace stops her. Even yeah, though, he, oh, he gets in the way or something, and that ca- and calls attention to it. So then she starts to run, and he chases her. So so, but she stabbed him though. Yes. Oh, yeah. Wholeheartedly, like full blade. The blade went all the way in. It looks like. So, what was she gonna do? Just like, like again, gotten what? Maybe a couple more stab stabs, and that's it. Like she had her shot. She clearly missed vital organs, or we live, or this world is one of those ones where medicinally they can cure anything. Because he gets stabbed in the abdomen, is goes chasing after them, mm-hmm. and is a hundred percent fine. And then later in the movie, we see him with a feel like though his wound is patched up, but it's legit like covering his entire torso, the bandage, and he's going right back to work. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. It's never explained how he's able to somehow survive. Never mind. Immediately. What? Recuperate from like an eight inch blade Mm -hmm. going into his abdomen. Mm hmm. Oh, Oh, yeah. It just it. Yeah. It makes no sense. Um, there's a little, it, it doesn't really make sense in the book, but they, they do kind of s- s- talk about her plan because in the book, uh, Terminator daddy is not in prison. He's in London. So her oh. whole plan is she's going to kill him. And then no matter what happens to her, Terminator daddy is going to come get her and turn her, turn her into a machine, which we'll get to. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. okay that, but yeah, that in the movie, that in the movie she just, she just runs away. She just runs away in the movie, and it's like, what? Uh, was that it? Was that your plan? 
You know, someone screamed and said, hey, stop that person who just stabbed the, the, the head of London. And she's just done. Like, what? Yeah. We have that. And they have a chase through the bowels of London. Yep. She video game cutscene, Hardcore. Then she goes down the giant, like, toilet. And then uh, uh, Hugo Weaving's talking to Guy McFace. And right before Hester Shaw falls down, the, do- the before she gets flushed, she's like, the Hugo Weaving murdered my mother. And he's like, what? And she lets go. And she goes, she gets flushed. And then he's like, Hugo Weaving, this random person just randomly stabbed you, told me that you killed her mother. Is this true? (laughs) And and instead of Hugo Weaving saying, what? He pushes Guy McFace down the toilet. Yep. Yep. And yeah, it makes no sense because he's like. Uh, this this one he this one guy he's the so Hugo Weaving's the head historian and he's like second in command of London he clearly has power in this community in this city and then he's just like okay I have to kill this dude or kill you know thinks he kills him to get rid of it and it's like uh, just talk it away like you do to your daughter two minutes later that's what I mean it's like the daughter yeah. pretty much asked the exact same question and he's like what yeah oh oh god that scene is so stupid because Catherine's like. Daddy, like, who was that girl? Uh, I don't know, some anti-tractionist. And then he's, like, leaving, and he's he's just, like, ranting, and he's like, I'm not going to let Hester Shaw or anyone stand in my way. And she goes, what? Who's Hester Shaw? And I'm like, why would he accidentally name drop her? That makes no sense. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I mean, like, there's so much of this movie that's just contrivance after contrivance. Oh, yeah. And I while we're on the scene where he's running and uh, Hester Shaw's running, I love the fact that we get to see some of the law enforcement from London chasing after her as well. This is so many years in the future, but the law enforcement of London are still English bobbies. Yes. <laughs> I loved that. That's so dumb. <laughs> Yeah, they look like cartoon characters for the most part. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Oh god. And so that's that's the kickoff to our plot. That's what gets Tom and Hester together on their adventure back to London, which turns into an adventure to destroy Medusa and stop the destruction of the shield wall. <laughs> which doesn't which barely gets mentioned until the third act. <laughs> well, we do see like very, very early in the film when uh, Gal McFace is with Hugo Weaving and she's looking at his desk and it's like, it's like a blueprint that says like the wall and there's a giant like X yep. through it. And mm-hmm. that's the only like establishing narrative like thread for the wall. That's yeah, it. They, it's, it's they all- try to set up so much stuff in this movie, but it's literally like they're they're cramming so much in there. It's like if you blink, you miss it. Because there's even, like, we see, like, a wanted video for Anna Fang calling her an anti-tractionist at the beginning, which I did not notice until the fourth time I watched yep. this movie. Yeah, there's all these weird things that, I can, I, I get it, they, they have to streamline things, but at the same time, it's, like, to the detriment of the overall film. It's like, what's the point of putting all this stuff in the film if no one is going to be able to recognize it? Mm-hmm, exactly. They're just, just like, after- okay. Go with it, you know. When in the third act, when Hugo Weaving just starts screaming, "We will destroy the Shield Wall!" Just go with it. Just buy it. <laughs> so we even get introduced to the people that are in charge of the Shield Wall, and they're just there. They're just people. There's a guy who's in charge of that, and we just see him, mm-hmm. and he's just there doing his thing. There's a group of really attractive people from like the Urban Like Outfitters catalog that are anti-tractionists. <laughs> like this is like a battle between like the Gap. In like, I, I again, what's the opposite of the gap in the mall? What's what's the in like, or again, Urban Outfit? Like, nah, urban yeah, Urban Outfitters. Outfitters. Yeah, but that's a like, white people store too. 
Um, <laughs> whatever. Okay, we have to figure out what the difference is. What we got? I don't know. Um, I'm just thinking of H and M because it was across the way from the Gap in the in the gallery for at some point. <laughs> so when you said opposite, that's what I thought of. I I again, I don't get it. It's just it, it's just so weird. And I get it. It's the idea that the the white people are the rich white people up in the ivory tower are evil, mm-hmm. and the in the diverse group of heroes are the good guys. And they have to defeat Hugo Weaving, and I just I don't even get why Hugo Weaving is here. Like, is that maybe that's why Anna Fang showed up in this movie? She got a whiff of him from the Matrix. She's like, "Aha, I'm getting closer." <laughs> sure, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I also don't understand. I I felt that Hugo Weaving's character in this Thaddeus Valentine, he's a character in the book as well. It's completely different. Thaddeus Valentine is like is like a henchman of the mayor. The mayor is the main antagonist in the book, and there's even like a lot of stuff where Thaddeus Valentine is conflicted about the traction and anti-traction stuff. And this is just like, no, he's a bad guy. And that's it. And it's like, you made him so one dimensional, you know, I, that doesn't make for interesting and inf- like inter- interesting storytelling. Of course, he's just going to stab people and shoot people and blow up walls like that. That's just what it is. That's the weird thing. Like Hugo, I still remember back like after Captain America and he played like red skeleton and, he, <laughs> I, I, and like, they've always wanted him to come back. And he's like, no, I'm not going to like do the same thing over again. And you look at Hugo Weaving's like resume, and it's literally the exact same thing in every movie. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I have to say I agree with you completely. I do like Hugo Weaving, but he does his shtick. You know, he's always he's always got that little bit of evilness to him, whether he's a good guy or not. You know, I'm thinking of like Agent Smith. He's doing his shtick in the Matrix. He's doing like the good version side of that in V for Vendetta, and it's he's got a shtick and he's good at it and he runs with it. But in this movie, it's like they just make boil it down so you can't even like there's nothing to grab onto. He's just bad, bad villain man, and it's lame. In the Lord of the Rings movies, what does he even do in that? Oh, <laughs> he's Lord Elrond. Yeah, he uh, he he tells what doesn't he tell the hobbits that they're stupid and they can't do anything? And then the next immediate scene, he's like, "Okay, hobbits, you have the most important job in the world." <laughs> I've never seen any of those, so I have no idea. Um, because he's even, he's Megatron in the Transformers movies. Oh, wow. I forgot about that. Which, which makes perfect sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh my God, Rob. He's in Legend of the Guardians, the Owls of Kahul. Oh, oh I, oh God. Okay. I'm, I know what I'm rewatching tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Cause he's even, it's pretty much his character in this is the same character. He's even in Clad Atlas. Well, he's like a million characters in Cloud Atlas, like everybody. <laughs> but that's what I mean, though. It's the same exact character, yeah. though. He's just bad guy. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, it's, yeah, he's, he's, get, he's not getting tapped into appropriately, especially in this movie, which is so one-dimensional, his character and throughout. It's a bummer. He was Cardboard awesome. cutouts, like we were saying, you know? That's what's so weird about this movie. Like, I don't get how you spend, like... How much does this movie cost? This movie costs around 100 to $150 million. Mm-hmm. Yet you literally fill it with the most boring actors on the face of this earth. <laughs> yep, yep. Maybe why don't you tone down the special effects by just a little bit and cast actors that actually like know how to perform. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure if it's their fault. Like, I, I, I haven't just seen any of these actors anywhere else. Yeah. Like, I know I, like, on the, I, I should be pointing out that I bought this as a Black Friday title. Yes. And uh, yeah, I think I, I got watch. a text of the picture from you, right? Was that? Yes. Okay. Yes. Invest yeah. by tried to scam me. 
Um, oh, that's right. That, the, yeah, the, the repackaged one. <laughs> yeah, I might get into that. Depending on how much mileage we get out of this episode. Do you do you think that that was Best Buy getting back at us for switching all the Ghost Rider and Ghost Writer boxes and DVDs back in the day? Do you think they they were keeping that in their back pocket for you? Have we ever told that story before? I don't remember. <laughs> okay, we have to tell this story now. That okay, back in. Back. Yeah, this is okay. This is our Hester Shaw break number one. Hester Shaw. Hester Shaw. <laughs> All right. Back in the summer of 2010, Rob and I, this is after high school. This is part of that summer. One of the films we saw, like in June, was The Ghost Rider, the Roman Polanski film starring Pierce Brosnan and Ewan yeah. McDonald. Good movie. And, I still like that. Yes. And we saw that. But however, we saw it, it came out on DVD that same summer. And it came out like in August. And so it was just, it was a new release. So what Rob and I did was we took, it's like with DVDs, they still kind of do it, but not, they don't do it for DVDs. They do it for Blu-rays now. But back in the day, they would have the DVDs and they have a slip cover, which is like a, co- a little cardboard thing that slips over the movie that they do for like the initial print run. Mm-hmm. And so what Rob and I did was we switched all those for Ghost Rider with the 2007 film Ghost Rider, starring Nicolas Cage, yep. with our with our goal being that someone would buy the Roman Polanski film and they would get the Nicolas Cage film. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we don't know if that ever happened. We don't know if these were this was ever undone. But uh, as I've said for many years. Uh, the best type of prank is the prank that you uh, do and distance yourself from, and you never really know if it worked or not. I love that. Truly Neo, ambiguous. Neorealism, I think that's called in some <laughs> in some case. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I can only hope that it did happen. That somebody like because okay, the thing about those, like, it's not like we like somebody genuinely took the DVD out, put it in the play, and like, what is this? Like, I don't think <laughs> it ever got that far. But at the very least, they made it home, and they're like, God damn it! Yes. <laughs> That's another trip to Best Buy I have to make now. <laughs> like I, you would have to assume, right? That like somebody bought at least one copy of that. The only thing you can think of is that somebody either made it to the register and somebody caught it. And they're like, and whoever was behind the cash register was like, wait, this isn't what it's mm, supposed to be. Yeah, could be like wrong. when they Yeah, could be. Yeah. Cause I don't I don't remember for those cases, but I know some DVD slipcovers I've seen. The UPC is is not on the slipcover. There's a little opening yes. like, for the UPC. So it could have been, like you said, the cashier scanned it, looked at the register, looked at the case, and was like, these are not the same movie, <laughs> you know, type unless, of thing. Unless it said ghost, like they shortened it, so it said oh. ghost R for writer and ghost W for writer. Yeah, that would make it harder to catch, yeah. And that's the only thing. I, I, at the very least, some someone had to have caught the mistake, unless they're still sitting in a warehouse somewhere. <laughs> because think about it. Somebody, uh, this, is, this is the only part of the story that I'm pretty sure happened, was that at some point, some Best Buy employee got told by their manager, somebody switched all the covers for Ghost Rider <laughs> and Ghost Rider. You have to now go and switch them all back. At the, <laughs> one thing we know for certain is during the summer of 2010, some poor Best Buy employee in upstate New York had to go through every copy of Ghost Rider and Ghost Rider and switch them back. That had to have happened. Somebody caught it oh, at some yeah. point. We don't know the furthest extent it went until somebody caught it. But somebody eventually did, and somebody had to go fix it all. That's what we know for certain. And that's what have been the fun part. We just sit there for the rest of the afternoon just waiting. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 you check the police blotter, and it's like two local boys in Poughkeepsie, New York, got arrested for chuckling and giggling in front of the new release DVD rack at Best Buy. We have mischief, public mischief, or something yes. like that. <laughs> mischief of acts by a youth. Um, but yeah, that's a thing that we did, folks, roughly 10 years ago. Yeah, and, and now what? you're getting payback because they tried to sell you weird repackaged Mortal Engines. They they're keeping their eye on you, Zach. What was? Isn't there another movie out there? Because I've always thought about like what would be the equivalent of doing that today of Ghost Rider and Ghost Rider. Ooh, yeah. I, I feel like there was something we were talking about like a year ago, right? Something came up. So it has to be something because I know. Isn't there another movie series called like The Mortal Instruments? Oh yeah, Mortal Instruments, Mortal Engines. Yeah, okay. Because I've always wanted to do this, like kind of the equivalent of Ghost Rider and Ghost Rider. We swap out the boxes for the Mortal Instruments with the Mortal Engines. <laughs> I like the, that. The problem, though, is that like Best Buy's like media section is so small now. Oh sure. And plus, they wouldn't have slip covers, like the cardboard casings. So there's literally no way to do that. Like there's like unless you brought your own from home, like you somehow fi- found slip covers. Yep. <laughs> you have your own from home of Mortal Engines and Mortal Instruments that you and considering that Mortal Instruments I think came out like five years ago. Yeah, 2013. I'm seeing. Yeah. Oh yeah, God. So, and there's six books in that series. No. All right, Rob. All right, Rob. Get started reading. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I guess you pointed out that for years I always got the well, not for years, for a while. Like when I first heard about the Mortal book. Oh god, I keep doing it. The Mortal <laughs> Engines. I was always convinced the tagline was the City of Bones. So every time I heard this movie for the longest time, I just assumed it was the Mortal Engines colon the City of Bones. It was some like sequel to the movie that came out five years ago. Okay. It's the Mortal Instruments colon City of Bones. And I'm finding I'm finding groundbreaking information uh-oh, right uh-oh. now, Zach. The person who plays protagonist McFace, Tom Natsworthy, in Mortal Engines is named Robert Sheehan, and he is also in the Mortal Instruments. God (laughs) damn. (laughs) This is, he plays Simon Lewis. Of course, Rob, of course. (laughs) When he's not not too busy playing Tom Natsworthy, he's playing that character. I'm just imagining him talking to his agent. Okay, what's the next project with the word mortal in it? I need to be involved. <laughs> I like his Wikipedia page. It's like he stars in blah, 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 as well as the as film roles such as Tom Natsworthy in Mortal Engines and Simon Lewis in the Mortal Instruments. Oh, God. There should be an LOL after that sentence. Yes. Oh, Jesus. I, I like how his, like... Like picture on Wikipedia is essentially like his Urban Outfitters like dummy mannequin picture. Like I'm pretty sure oh, it's not a real person. Yeah. I just pulled it up. Oh my god! Yeah, that that is some. Yeah, that looks like a Madame Tussauds wax. Yes, sculpture. it's not a real Absolutely. person. Absolutely. Yeah. Is, Rob, is there a possibility that like that's what they used in this movie? They just got like wax figures. They they used some sort of like voodoo <laughs> magic and brought them to life. <laughs> I was gonna say CGI. <laughs> they CGI'd some wax figures. Is there a possibility? Because I think yeah, it is. It could be. That would explain why you know no characters can react to the others in, a, in an appropriate way. Yeah, because there's, there's 
oh my god, it gets worse. He has more pictures and it gets worse. Um, <laughs> I guess I should point out that Tom Natsworthy has not acted in other films since Mortal Engines. Mm, okay, okay. He's waiting for the sequel. <laughs> What's the name of the second book? Predator's Gold is the second book. Oh, Jesus Christ. And then, and then Infernal Devices is the third. And the fourth is A Darkling Plane. What the fuck? <laughs> oh, oh, so, and I don't even mention there's then then Philip Reeve wrote prequels called Fever Crumb. Like crumb is in like I I ate things and it left crumbs. Fever what? crumb. That's the prequel to Mortal Engine series that explains more about how the like the the steampunk cities came to be. Fever wow. crumb, a web of air, and Scrivener's Moon. <laughs> this this dude. What the hell? Has what this dude comes up with names the way that they write like Family Guy cutaways, <laughs> <laughs> pulling names out, pieces of paper out of hat. <laughs> it's not even a good like. You know, I, I think we've made it like a running joke on Cinemas that we love sequel titles. Predator's Gold isn't even a good sequel title. No, yeah, I don't know. Mortal like Engines it. Two: Predator's Gold. Like, that's not fun. That's just dumb. Yeah, and if anything, Infernal Devices is the only one that fits with mortal engines that should have been yeah. a second yeah. i don't know what the hell a darkling well i did i didn't read books two three and four but i did look into where the story goes so we'll do that at the end when it, it's revealed who the true main hero of the entire series is i think zach's gonna lose his fucking mind <laughs> related works fever crumb traction codex bleak midwinter night what the f- <laughs> <laughs> philip reeve what are you doing <laughs> God, Lord, like, what's the opposite of like cocaine? Like, that's what this guy was taking when he was making all these. <laughs> I think he, he was like using a Ouija board to come up with some. <laughs> I, I was gonna say he took some Prozac and just fell asleep on the computer. That was his his <laughs> method to writing. But oh God, yeah, the names. I guess while we're on the topic of names, it's only said once in the movie. But Anna Fang's ship that they they get rescued on, it's called the Jenny Hanover. It has a first and a last name. <laughs> Jenny oh. Hanover. Okay, oh, speaking, okay, you brought this, real quick. You brought Jenny. the part of the ship. There's a moment in this film, rather late, late in it, where uh, Fang is piloting the ship, and she gets out, and Guy McFace and Hester Shaw are there, mm-hmm. and she turns around the Guy McFace and goes, "Take care of her." Yep. And she gets out and like does like a like one of those like like she does a badass woman like she leaps out of the ship like backwards or something. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. And I'm like, is 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 she saying take care of the ship or take care of Hester Shaw? <laughs> and I'm like, like I don't get. Like, it's, a good point. it's like, is it because we hear like you said early in the film she's like, oh, I'm here to protect Hester Shaw. Yes. But then like her ship is her like prized possession. Hmm. And I'm like, which which one is it? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, nobody, knows. <laughs> nobody knows. <laughs> the the filmmakers don't know. The author doesn't know. The actors certainly yeah. don't. Know. I I also love the fact that Tom can pilot ships. The sole reason the movie gives that Tom is able to pilot ships so quickly is because when he was a child, he was interested in becoming a pilot. Yes. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Like nothing in this movie makes sense. We should. I, I think I, just as we haven't made that clear at this point, literally nothing. Like you watch this movie, yes. and you're confused the entire time, and not even like good confused. It's the worst kind of confusion. You're just sitting there, like, mm-hmm. what is happening? Like you feel lost. It's kind of like imagine being on like a motion simulator for two hours. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's in. I was I was gonna put this more towards the end, but I think you hit the nail on the head. The fa- my probably the favorite my favorite review I found of this movie or quote from a review. Um, someone named Tim Roby from the Daily Telegraph described this film as a mechanical, soulless, dystopian theme park ride to nowhere. Yes. And that sums it up perfectly. <laughs> it's soulless, it's mechanical, dystopian, and it goes absolutely nowhere because you have no concept of what's going on. It truly is incomprehensible. Yeah, it's like, it, it's it's amazing. Like, you have that much money, yet nothing clicks in the movie. Yep. Yeah. Outside, and even the spectacle kind of falls like falls flat. We don't know what we're looking at half the time. We've got we've got giant city that has that's on treads. We have like snake, small like like a snake like little miniature cities. Mm-hmm. We have these weird little shanty towns that can somehow all combine with each other. Yet they can immediately just like disconnect. We have <laughs> airships. We have airships in the sky. We have floating weird, like, oh, God, Scarab-esque floating prisons. Like, what oh, yeah, is Az- Azkaban. Yeah, Azkaban. <laughs> <laughs> floating mobile Azkaban, yes. We have walls. Like, like what? I, I don't know. Like, this is, like, I don't know how you have this much imagination and money and get nothing out of it. Yeah, I think that goes. That's exactly what I was saying earlier. After I read the book and looking at the lens of this movie, like it's squandered potential. They sh- something should have worked, but it's crazy that nothing did. It blows me away. Think of all the starving children you could feed with the budget of this movie. <laughs> like, think about that. Like, somebody literally like this is one of those examples, kind of like Gili, where. I do the I, like the marketing side of my brain starts like working and like can you imagine being the universal executive that day that like watching like the first cut of this film? Oh God! Like seriously, like if you're an executive and you're like uh, like the movie finishes like and, the, and like the, the the score starts, like we have like Hester Shaw and Guy McFace embrace and the score starts to, to play, and you look and you're like uh, you turn to your assistant and you're like how much does this cost? Um, hundred fifty million dollars, sir. <laughs> And like, how do you just not sit there and just honestly contemplate not shooting somebody? Yep, yep. I, I don't think Zach has seen it yet, but the opening scene of the Hudsucker Proxy is a businessman committing suicide, <laughs> and that's exactly what I think the executives would th- were thinking after watching this movie. Like, like where's it- the nearest window we can jump <laughs> out of? <laughs> they have to start putting those suicide nets they have around the apple factories in china outside the universal between this and cats like the yeah. suicide they, they they run through it like a set every single day oh god support yep. turn has to keep restringing the net oh. <laughs> like seriously like how do you look at this and just not like if you're like a shareholder of like i guess what a comcast how do you look at this and not just be like jesus mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Like everything, like on this, like even like I watched some of the behind the scenes features for this today, and I had to turn them off halfway through because of how boring they were. Oh God, I can't even. Imagine. Even, even the behind the scenes stuff is boring. Like I watched two, like one of them wasn't even a feature. It was like a, it was kind of like what you'd imagine they would play like in the pre-show on the thrill ride or like the like the theme park attraction for sure. this because it was like a oh god like a, like a three minute like faux infomercial for the museum of london and it's oh. them like going through like all the stuff about like virt like all different technology over the years but the problem is 
they're showing all these relics of our contemporary reality. Mm-hmm. Like they show a PlayStation Two. They they show like like a Oculus Rift headset, and they give all these dates as for like when they were used, but the dates are all wrong. <laughs> and I get oh it. God. And I get it. They're trying to be cute, being like, "Oh, they don't know when certain things happen. Yeah. They can't date them properly." Yeah, the filter of time. Yeah, you, you, sure. You don't you lose some information? Yeah. But at no point do they establish that's the cute little gimmick they're trying to get at. Like at no point in this little faux PSA are they trying to be like, "Oh, we don't know when these things were done. They could have been from like a thousand or like like ten thousand years ago." Oh, so they'll be okay. like, they'll show like a beat up PS2, and it's like twenty three eighty four AD. <laughs> then they'll sh- then they'll show like an Oculus Rift headset and be like dated eighteen seventy four AD. Oh God. Oh my and God! And it's like, wh- why are you doing this? Like, you have to like whoever made this has to realize like we live in a society when we know when these things were made. So why not just sit there have things like PlayStation Two, two thousand question mark Oculus Rift two thousand like seventeen question mark. That's insane. That's insane. Yeah. You're del- yeah. Oh God. That's, put a range. Put a range of dates. Put the circa. Put the question mark. Like you said. Do something that a real museum would do. Yeah, and it's like because even though you're trying to be cute, you're unintentionally disorienting the viewer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And when you and when you unintentionally disorient a viewer, you frustrate them. And when you frustrate them, they walk out not liking your product, which is bad enough when Rob and I watch it when we have it in our households. Imagine spending like twenty dollars. Imagine like going to see this one night, like opening night. Imagine oh, dropping geez. twenty bucks on one viewing of this as a non-fan of the book. Oh God, I, I've always heard stories of people at movie theaters like asking for their money back. I've never done it, but this this might have led me to it. <laughs> Like, this is one of those things where, like, again, if you're, like, Peter Jackson, like, at one point, one of the behind-the-scenes features, he's interviewed, and, like, and honestly, like, I have to put, like, maybe a few dozen, like, like, oh, God. Rob, is there, like, a quantitative measure for a Hester Shaw? Like, I, is that what, like, you use a word or a phrase, like, like what, at least a hundred times? Is that what it's, like, a Hester Shaw's amount of something? Oh, okay, sure. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I have to put, like, a Hester Shaw's amount of allegedly in front of this. But Peter Jackson looks. <laughs> a Hester's, what about a Hester's dozen? A Hester's dozen. Okay. It's like it's like in the quadruple digits. <laughs> there we go. I had to put a Hester's dozen in front of this allegedly. But like Peter Jackson looks like he's coked out of his mind. Like I okay. honestly think he was in the middle of a bed. And they're like, Mister Jackson, we need you for this because they're just like, like they cut to him and he's just like, so you you have the shots when they're doing the thing and cut to like Guy McFace actor being like, I liked it when I was on set because I got to wear a pretty costume. And I'm like, wait, what? What did Peter Jackson say? How does that fit into any of this? Sure. And it's like, I don't know how they got him attached to this. Because, like, I I guess this is the same Peter. I guess Peter Jackson really is the current generation of George Lucas where you have this guy that made this, like, truly phenomenal thing in cinema. And -hmm. then he comes back and he has no idea how it worked. And you get this, this, like, mess of cinema where, like, Lucas came back with the prequels. And... The Hobbit's very similar. Like most yeah. people, like the the consensus, who knows how true it is, is that most people who like the Lord of the Rings films do not like The Hobbit. I have no idea how true that is. And then Peter Jackson would later go on to produce a bunch of things, much like George Lucas did, that nobody likes. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those things where it's like I just don't get how anybody in their right mind can look at this and want their name attached to it. 
like Peter Jackson should have been like, I want my name off this. Like, I do not want to be associated with this. Because I know even in my research I did for this, most people erroneously state him as the director of this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, every single piece of marketing, even on the Blu-ray box, in big, bold letters, it says, from the visionary of Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I remember um, looking at, like, trailers and stuff after the fact, and that's his name splattered all over it. Absolutely. Yeah, like, I, in all honesty, I don't think anybody on this earth that sees this film will think Christian Rivers was a director of this film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Talk about dodging a bullet. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Oh God! Yeah, it makes no sense. It's it's crazy. Uh, yeah, I I don't get it. It's truly incomprehensible. It's uh, it might be the purest incomprehensible blockbuster we're discussing on this series, and which is part of the reason it's episode 100, right? Like, I want people to realize. Think about some of the weird stuff Rob and I have delved into on this podcast, and this is really the first time we are just we we are at a loss for words. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I think about Cat in the Hat. Zeely. <laughs> Yeah, elves. Yeah. Oh yeah, jeez. Who would have thought it would take mortal engines to break us? <laughs> a book from the early two thousands <laughs> gets made into a movie seventeen years later, and it is incomprehensible. Oh my god! Because even like in the like I said, I gave up watching the behind the scenes features because they had they had the stupid little like faux infomercial. Then they had like four mini features on like the actors and the roles they were playing. They have Hester Shaw. Guy McFace, Fang, and uh, Daddy Terminator. Okay. And we get to the actress that plays Hester Shaw, and they're like, oh, like, like we, we really cast Hester Shaw late into like pre production. Like, we were like, we literally cast her like right before we started shooting. And we got like, and they, the director says that when Hira Hilmar, she didn't even come in, they got like a Skype interview with her. And it's oh, like, God. as soon as we saw her, we knew she was perfect for Hester Shaw. And I'm like that. That that's how you cast your oh lead actress for your 150 million dollar film through a Skype interview. Jeez. If you want, if you want to get an interview at McDonald's, you have to jump through more hoops. Yeah, yeah, that's insane. I don't get it. Like I genuinely don't get it. I'm assuming they cast um, Guy McFace as a hey. He was in. He was in a, the first uh, Mortal Instruments, right? Let's get him back for this. And they're like, no, this is not the same movie, but sure. <laughs> I guess I should say that after the thing about Hester Shaw, my brain just turned off. I'm like, Fair. I don't care. Like, Fair. it was playing on the television. My eyes were looking at said television while it played. Much like the scene in Dr. Sleep, anything could have happened at that moment in my life, and I have zero memory of it. Fair. Fair. So, so I'm guessing you tuned out, or maybe you turned it off, tuned out or turned off. Uh, tune off, turn off, switch off, whatever it is. Just tune in, turn off, drop out, drop in, switch off, switch on, and explode. Woo! Uh, when they get to the person who plays Anna Fang, go by the name Jihei. Uh, I, I did not know this until I researched for this this recording. She's a musician. She's been in like one thing before this. As an actor, I mean. She's a legit musician, and they cast her for one of the main supporting roles. That's ridiculous. One of the main roles, if this if this movie had done well, if this movie got sequels, Anna Fang is in the other books. She, she comes back as a Terminator, as it turns out, but she's in the other books. That's crazy to me. They cast unknown pieces of cardboard. Who didn't cut the Matrix? <laughs> yeah. I guess you should point out that Hira Hilmar, Hester Shaw, after this only has two more acting credits, and I would imagine they were both 
she would probably was signed for both of them after mm. she, at, before this was released. Yeah, yeah, I, I would I would assume so. Oh god. Yeah. So yeah. So I know at one <laughs> I know at one point um when they act they interview the actress for anna fang she does kind of the generic thing she's like she's a badass tough woman just oh, like yeah. me and i'm like yeah 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 you along with everybody else in hollywood mm-hmm. and and then we get to which i didn't even know this until this featurette that bad guy from avatar is daddy terminator it, yeah steven lang I, I could not tell until i looked it up as well <laughs> because in his featurette that lasts about like five minutes they talk about how he got so committed to this role to the point where like he read the book so many times they're interviewing the author of the series. And he's like, he knows more about this character than I do. Oh, that, that's always what you want to hear. Right. And yeah, I know, right. <laughs> and the best part is that they show a lot of behind the scenes footage of Stephen Lang with all the, like, like the giant, like gray pajamas. Yeah. And the, like in the motion tracking suit and on the motion tracking suit. I love how they have a little, like just in case on set, anybody was confused to who he was playing. It says what strike strike. S, yeah. Strike S Lang giant bold like name patch across his oh chest just in case they got confused on set that he was playing any of the other characters that can blend in with each other the most unique character yeah. in the film they felt the highlight oh, they should have done that with all the characters they should have had a giant thing on hester shaw that says hester shaw another one on guy mcface another yeah. one on bad guy mcface Another one, Hugo Weaving, yet the only character that is truly inimitable in the entire film, they felt they needed to label. Oh, my God. Oh, okay, I guess I guess now's the time. We have to talk about Shrike in, in this movie. By far. Daddy my, Terminator. Daddy Terminator, Shrike, Green-Eyed Terminator. We have so many names for him now. Uncle Daddy the, Terminator. Uncle Daddy Terminator. Uh, in my opinion, best part of the book and the movie. It's so insane that I'm intrigued by it. Because here we go. This this is in, this is insane to me the first moment I saw it in the movie. It's insane to me every time I see this movie. It's still fucking insane to me as I read it like in detail in the book. Hester Shaw, Pandora Shaw gets killed because Hugo Weaving finds out she's an anti-tractionist in the book. She gets killed in the movie because she tries to take some old tech away from him and he throws a temper tantrum. And he kills Pandora Shaw. He slashes Hester's face off. Hester's able to run away, gets picked up by the by Shrike, who's a stalker in the universe of, of Mortal Engines. And stalkers are uh, cyborgs, basically, like dead people that get reanimated as machines to be like headhunters. That's, that's their gist. And so Shrike is on his own for some reason. You don't really find out why uh, from what I've read until the later books. But Shrike is doing his own thing. He finds Hester Shaw as a little girl and decides to raise her. The robot raises a girl, (laughs) feeding her like gray slop from a can. Yes. uh, Yes. Talking about telling her when she's sad and things like that. And this is so one, I'm I'm baffled by this, that this robot, which we in the book, in the movie, we don't know why he's on his own. We don't know why he picks her up. That gets fleshed out a little more in the other books from what I've read. But not only doesn't take care of her, he lives with her for years and one day says to her, Hester Shaw, you are always sad. 
I want to turn you into a machine so you won't be sad anymore. And he, that's that's his plan. His plan is to kill her and reanimate her as a stalker so she won't be sad anymore. And Hester Shaw agrees to this until she finds out that London is going to be close enough to her that she can get revenge for her mother and runs away from Shrike. And that's why Shrike is chasing her because, as he says in the movie in the book, he, she broke her promise. She promised to become a machine. It's not explained in either why this doesn't just happen. Like, in both the movie and the book, there's a scene where Hester Shaw is like, I promised him I would become a machine. And then she doesn't? Like, what? Like, did he need time to prepare? Like, just do it. Just kill her and make her a machine. Another thing that makes no fucking sense in this. But this blows me away. That you're sad. I'm going to kill you and make you a machine. (laughs) I, okay, on a schlocky level, I love the idea of that, like, they've been living together for, like, ten years, if not more. Oh, like, she yeah. Looks like, she looks like she's about eight years old, like, in the flashbacks. And I love, like, when she runs away after Hugo Weaving kills her mother. I, and I love how the little girl actress, like, collapses into a giant thing of mud. <laughs> and I'm like, you, you could have collapsed a little bit to the left instead. <laughs> um, and so he finds her. And, like, by the events of this movie... Hester Shaw has to be at least what twenty five in the in the movie. Yeah, I believe I know they aged a lot of characters up from the books because whatever you know, it was sure. more it was more young adult. But I'm pretty sure the book says it's they they lived together for seven years. Oh, but in okay. the movie in the movie it's like she's a little girl with no agency or sense of self to a full grown adult when yes. she runs away. So I love okay. Since I never read the book, I'm discussing the movie for the most part. I, I love the. I, I do a quick interjection. I asked Zach if he wanted a copy of the book, and he was like, "Hell no, 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 <laughs> no, absolutely not." Um, um. So I love the notion that they've been living together for at least at least ten plus years, and like the like one day he's like, "I'm gonna murder your ass." Mm-hmm. So you're not going to be sad. And then the very <laughs> next day, London drives by. She's like, yoink. Yes. Why could I, this is the part that's quite, okay. Maybe you understand this because you have the lore. Is there any reason why that he couldn't, she just couldn't say, oh, I want to get revenge on him. Then you can murder my ass. Because at one point, like she's explaining to Guy McFace and it's like, I broke a promise. And it's like, well, then just kill him and then go back. Tell him. Tell him. Yeah. Uh, considering that he's a single, like, it's funny. He reminds me of the, the what do you want to call it, the evil entity from It Follows. He more or less just travels in straight lines to Hester Shaw, despite mm-hmm. the fact that it's never explained where he knows she is at any given time, never well, explained it, it, at all. It's implied that he has super speed because in his intro scene, he's on floating cube in Azkaban in a, in a cube of metal. Hugo Weaving, as the head of London, <laughs> apparently doesn't have power to release a prisoner, so he blows up the prison. <laughs> the prison is the prison is like a thousand nautical miles into the sea. It, you see it crash, and he's instantly at the shore in the same shot. So oh, I just took in, in the movie. So okay. I, I take that to mean he has super speed, and and he also knows where Hester Shaw is at all <laughs> times, which is also not explained in either. It, it is. So it's not explained. That was one of my problems with the book, which I was hoping it would explain. It doesn't explain why she's just like, hey, I got to go do this, and then I'll come back. It, it does get into it a little bit because, like I said before, 
Shrike is not in prison in the book. He's in London, and, like, the London government, the engineers are trying to use him to make more stalkers. But he is captured, and the reason he's captured by London is because he's looking for Hester Shaw. So this is all before... It makes no sense. She's, you're right. She should have just been like, hey, I want to be a machine. I don't want to be sad anymore. But let me kill this dude. You could possibly help me, Uncle that, Daddy yeah. Terminator. But mm-hmm. no, I'm just going to run away for no That's what, reason. That was another thing I had. I'm like, A, well, A, it's like, why can't she just tell him, like, BRB? Like, we'll, we'll do yeah. this, I promise. Then the second thing is, why not invite him along? He seems like he'd be thrilled on a murder quest. That seems yeah. to be his cup of tea. And then C... Why not become the murder bot, then go after him? Because mm-hmm. they show because she says at one point in the movie that Uncle Daddy Terminator still like remembers his family. So yes. clearly that even when you do this, you still have memories. Yeah, there's twinges of humanity. Yep. So just program like tell like what he should what she should tell him is like, okay, I'll become a murder bot. It'll make my job infinitely easier considering that it takes like 40 shots to the chest to take <laughs> one of these things down. Yeah. It's like, so just program into my matrix or whatever it's called that I want to kill Hugo Weaving. Exactly. But no, the, no. The, movie, the movie just glosses over this by cutting back to Hugo Weaving screaming about old tech at Dr. Twix. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Dr. Twix. It makes no sense. You're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's bonkers. I guess I, one thing I do want to point out, maybe we'll, we'll probably highlight it when we talk about snacks, but I absolutely love that he feeds her like, like the consistency oh, is like rancid cottage cheese out of a can. I love that yes. as a, as a vision. That's one thing I genuinely liked as a visual. I love somebody opening a can in this, this like, um, oh God, it's like a combination of like rancid cottage cheese, but like mm-hmm. with like jelly cranberry sauce just comes out and just splatters onto the plate and i'm like oh yeah it's gross you know, but it, it, it it's it's a snack all right <laughs> visually it's delightful it is it, a visual like thing that happens it's maybe the only redeemable element of this entire film <laughs> oh god so yeah that's that's uncle daddy terminator um i want to get to it at the end i want to talk about him more but a big difference the movie makes it out very much that he dies. He gets shut off in some sense. Sure. It dies. It's a robot. It. And it <laughs> it gets shot to shit by the, the anti-tractionist. It has a huge hole in its chest. In the book, it just gets deactivated. And he comes back in further books. That's another thing I didn't get, though. Is like His whole goal, like he's chasing down Hester Shaw to mm-hmm. just... Again, I, I, it's so weird that, like, you're telling me in the years of their existence together, she did everything he wanted to immediately. Except that, this. <laughs> except this. And then as soon as she leaves, again, he's a robot. What the hell is a promise mean to a robot? Yeah. And then two or three, once he finds her at the giant, like, air balloon palace... He goes on a murder rampage mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for no other reason than just the movie calls for him to go on a murder rampage. Yep, exactly. You need you need some, I don't know, it's like their version of a ticking clock. They can't stay in the same place too long, but they have the ticking clock with Medusa. They know that London's about to blow everything up. <laughs> yeah, I don't get it. Like, like, eventually when he catches up to them, why doesn't she just go up to him and be like, okay, mm-hmm. I'll do just- this. Yeah, she just stands in the back and lets everybody and the anti-tractionists fight him and die. Yeah, exactly. And in plus two, I don't like again. He wants Hester Shaw, so she'll keep her promise. 
but then he's in a city that like we we see the queue a million times don't make any sparks don't light anything we yep. could blow sky high and it's like what does he think's gonna happen to hester shaw if he like, he's causing all this damage like if she steps on a wrong floorboard she dying he can't yes, fly I, yeah i i think that that's okay for him because in this universe, to turn people into machines, they have to be dead first. Oh, so okay. I so it, I think it's it fine doesn't that matter. Dies, oh. But it, it would inconvenience him because when they're in Air Haven, that that city in the sky, the port in the sky, if she's fallen from there, one, her body's not going to be in one piece <laughs> when it hits the ground, and two, it's going to take him a while. Well, okay, I just answered my question. It's not going to take him a while to find her because it's the it follows logic. You're absolutely right. <laughs> But the thing too is that like and I get it, this is a movie with giant cities, like on giant treads, like there's no reality here. <laughs> but even if like we we're we in a we're in a universe that like clearly falling out of the sky equals bad. I think that's yes. fair to assume, right? Yes. Gravity so, is still a thing. So if she falls out of the sky, there's gonna be literally nothing left. She's gonna hit the ground at like how many thousands of miles miles per hour. Mm-hmm. There's gonna be nothing left to reprogram into a robot. And the same goes for him. If he yeah. hits the ground, he's going to be a, like a, a pile of Uncle Daddy Terminator. <laughs> like him you, think, do it. you think he can reforge himself like the Iron Giant? Bring all um, the pieces back together? Maybe like a T-1000. Maybe he just slowly like, sure. reconnects. I, I don't know. Like, What's his endgame by going on a murder rampage? Yep. I, I don't know. If he just wants to murder her indiscriminately, why did he do that in the last 10 years? Oh, clearly, from what we've said, we have to ask Stephen Lang, because he knows more about the character than the goddamn <laughs> author of the fucking book. God, it's so stupid. Why would an author ever say that? That's fucking mind-boggling. You know, you know what's really funny? In that behind-the-scenes featurette, they have, like, pictures of him, like, like in his trailer, and he's like has, like, all the books with, like, little, like, post-it notes on, like, certain pages, and, like, dog-eared, like, dog-eared le- uh, pages. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, what a waste. Like, no wonder uh-huh. why Jimmy C. cast this guy in the Avatar 2 sequel, even though he's dead. This guy is so committed to crap roles that, like, at a certain point, you're like, oh, God. Like, how do you not? Like, you kind of yeah. have to respect like, that sort of level of, like, just commitment to garbage. Yep, yep. Uh, oh, he's in an episode of SVU. I would love to see if he did that much work for a, a wrongly accused pedophile. Yeah. Oh, Mi- Milo Ventimiglia's in that episode, too. Tune in course. in two weeks. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, the Uncle Daddy Terminator. Like, and even at the end, it doesn't make any sense because, like, it does the thing that Rob always hates is that, like, he's going on a murder rampage. He's what uncle oh sorry guy mcface is you know like everybody shot uncle daddy terminator a million times mm-hmm. it's not until guy mcface somehow shoots him that he's about to die and yeah. hester shaw goes running up to him like no he's a good guy yeah and you look around like we have we literally have a hot air balloon city that's on fire that's crashing to the earth <laughs> yeah he's caused single-handedly yet he's the good guy and the whole time he goes like Hester Shaw. Hester Shaw. And yeah. it's like I forgive you. And it's like yeah. where the like he, he couldn't have forgiven her five minutes earlier when this thing wasn't falling out of the sky. Yep. Yeah. It, yeah. It it makes no sense. I know that the movie, the book doesn't even flesh it out that well, but the movie tries to do the whole thing because it's set up that he can see her emotions. Like he's like, you're sad. 
you need to eat like you're constipated you know that's that's (laughs) you're on your oh uh, one thing i guess we should say the movie nor the book talks about how the the robot handles you know puberty for this young girl doesn't get covered at all huge question but he can he can apparently tell these things you know but by looking at her and then in the movie in the book they're kind of like he, she's like, oh, you are in love with him or something like that. And yep. so she's like, I forgive you. You have a good emotion. You're not sad. And it's like, it makes more sense. Yeah, it makes more sense, though, that that's why in the book he just gets deactivated. Like they don't like he just gets shut down so they can escape. They don't kill him because he like he forgives her. And he's like, OK, I'm going to power down type of thing. Oh, OK, that OK, that makes it a little bit better. I guess I missed I must have missed that. There was a. After a while, your brain just has to turn off the for self preservation. <laughs> like I browser. like I said, four. I needed to watch this movie four times to get semblance of something that was I, going I, on. I, I, I never want to watch this movie again. <laughs> never mind two more times. Oh um, God. Yeah. Uh, okay. And then and then we're the then we're in the third act, and it's all Medusa and the, the wall. shield wall. Yeah, yeah. yeah that comes out which of nowhere. Is, which is really where I just kind of stop taking notes and just the the random fuck you movie moments like. <laughs> They all have to go and take down Medusa. Uh, Hester Shaw realizes the thing that her mother gave her is the crash drive to shut down Medusa. Um, the the anti-tractionists make a like a diversion so Hester and Tom can land on London. And you get that stupid thing when Anna, like Zach said before, Anna Fang is like, "Take care of her." And then she, I think in the same scene, she's talking about the plan, and she's like wait for my signal and then go in. And Tom's like, how will I know when you give the signal? And she goes, trust me, you'll know. And I'm like, fuck you movie. In that moment, Tom should have been like, that is not an answer. <laughs> we, we need a plan right now. <laughs> well, even in the movie, like there's no sign. Like, doesn't she just jump off the airship and then jumps through a window? I think there's gunfire. Like, that's, they that's go in it. when they hear gunfire. <laughs> yeah. How would you, you're, you're literally piling an aircraft. You're not going to hear a bunch of random bullets going off. Exactly. It, oh, yeah. On a, on a city that is moving yeah. on, and like, shoot, tank and shoot, treads. And shooting a giant, like, laser weapon at a wall and exploding it. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to hear four gunshots. The, the last act of this movie should just be tinnitus the film. Like, it should be <laughs> constant ringing, because that's all our characters would hear. Oh, my God. This is so. So I, I did. I did want to point out one of my notes because in in the movie we do get to see Medusa, sh- uh, the quantum energy blast from Medusa, go off twice and just fuck the shit out of this wall. And at the, when I was watching this, I took the note. I was like, "Oh, I dig the look of the quantum energy blasts." And then I immediately was like, "That's only because it's identical to the Doctor Manhattan explosion at the end of Watchmen." Oh yeah, yeah. When yeah. it's like it's like the thing, the laser hits. It causes a big shockwave. Shockwave zooms in and then blows stuff up. It's exactly the same thing from Zack Snyder's Watchmen, just purple yep. instead of blue. Yep. Yep. Oh, okay. And then the movie goes completely. Uh, it further off the rails, like you didn't even know. You thought it was at the edge of the universe, and it goes further from the rails because Hester Shaw gets to the command console for Medusa. <laughs> okay, she puts in she Medusa. Medusa has fired twice now with no countdown. Third time, it needs a countdown because the movie needs suspense. Fuck you. And we see her at the command console. Anna Fang is holding off uh, Hugo Weaving, and. She puts in the crash drive, and you see her start typing things. And it, and she's, like, trying to input something or get the crash drive to work. 
And that's like the suspense. We see almost 20 seconds in a few different shots of her typing things into this command console. In the middle of this, it cuts away to Hugo Weaving and Anna Fang. They're having their duel. I think they're like sword fighting or something. Yep, yep. And and you see a shot of Hester Shaw at the command console from Anna Fang and Hugo Weaving's point of view, which is up above on a railing. And you can see the screen of the command console and there's six numbers, just six digits. Does it take her 20 seconds to type in six numbers? Like, well, I understand she was raised by a fucking Terminator, but how do you not type in six numbers? You could do that by just noticing and remembering shapes. You don't even know that a six is a six. You look at the screen, you look at the keyboard, and they match up. It, it's, it's so stupid. It's, it's manufactured suspense for no reason, and I hate it. I agree with you that it's manufactured suspense, but what happens in the movie... Six numbers! But what happens is that, like, and this is the part that drove me nuts, is like when she plugs the flash drive in, she, like, it comes up, she needs to wait first, like, it'll be like, she plugs it, and it, then it gives her, there's, there's like a pause between each number entry. So it'll be like, okay, it's kind of like what happened in what, Terminator 3, where they have to, like, type in, like, the the access code. Oh, oh at the end, sure. Yeah, it's like okay, uh, blue forty two, uh, Dakota forty eight. Was and, that the one that, where one of the, only one of the letters is lowercase? Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, authorized with a, with a capitalized authorized, but a lowercase d. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we great movie. Be- Better movie than this by miles. <laughs> Months ago, but we're still trying to figure, crack that mystery on Cinemates. Um, but no, so what happens is like in that moment, like she plugs the flash drive in. It has to like decrypt every single number, okay. and then she has to type it in. So like, okay, first number. It's kind of like the Powerball drawings. It takes like thirty <laughs> seconds for the little like the little ping pong ball to float out of the machine, go up into the socket, and it does that. She's like, okay, uh, thirty-eight, or she's like seven, hit seven. Then she's like, come on, come on. And it's but like, isn't she constantly hitting keys though? I think that's what it is. she has to like push different keys to unlock different numbers. Okay, I that's a better explanation. How does she no, know no, how to it, do that? <laughs> it does, it does, no, no, it's not explained. Because so what oh, happens sure. is, so it's what happens that yes, we have the giant timer of it ticking down as uh, Fang and Hugo weaving like try to like stab each other. And while this happens, it's like okay, the it's, again, there's six numbers. The first number takes her like fifteen seconds. Second number takes her like thirty seconds. Yes. Third number takes her like a minute. Fourth number takes her like another minute And then like we're down to the last 20 seconds And like oh crap at this rate they're dead And then mm-hmm. like out of nowhere she gets the last numbers Like one two I, I, Immediately like within a second okay. And it's like wait so the fr- like, we, we went through this entire process of establishing That every single number takes longer and longer To like decrypt Until we get to the final two when the clock's almost at zero Then we rush it And I can't tell if that's a production issue Or if that was an editing issue Oh, uh, fair. I, I can't stand it either way. It's horrible. No, it's horrible. <laughs> yes. And then at that point, once they deactivate Medusa, I'm like, oh, the movie this is what? Fang gets impaled or something. Yeah, she and gets stabbed, and then she's, like, thrown off the railing, and she falls into the fog as everything's yeah. blowing up. Yeah. Yeah, and she's like, I was two days away from retirement. And and so— Oh, and had- then Hugo Weaving gets on his ship. Okay. Yes. And I forgot Fang's- about that. Anna Fang's ship, as we said, is called the Jenny Hanover, and it's only said once in the movie. It's never said in the movie, but Hugo Weaving's ship is named the 13th Elevator. Not even the 13th Floor Elevator, just the 13th Elevator. 
The I other, can only the, imagine there's a fleet of ships called the Elevators, and he has the thirteenth one. The one, the first through twelfth were all in the shop that weekend. Oh uh, but I guess we should point out too that while this is all going on, that Gal, oh god, Gal McFace, Hugo Weaving's daughter, oh, is yes. with with is with like what the the engineer dude. Engineer McRat, uh, I'm sorry, Engineer McFace. Bevis, and, yes. Yes, Bevis, as they're all like going. Like, okay, oh God, we even explain this part of the movie. Oh, God, Rob, It's not wanna, in the movie at all. <laughs> yeah, we have to talk. Oh, I don't want to talk. What the subplot of them getting back to St. Paul's Cathedral? Or how, how Catherine has the same ability as Shrike to just find one engineer in the bottom level of London instantly? Oh my god, okay, there's okay, I'm gonna try to do this as fast as possible. So earlier in the film, Guy McFace is showing Blonde McWoman that he's been hiding weapon like high-tech weaponry, like inadvertently from Hugo Weaving. And mm. then out of nowhere, we see that bad guy McFace sees that he's doing this. And then at one point, bad guy McFace goes to Hugo Weaving's like, hey, I want a promotion. I can show you where you can find the like the, the missing key to get Medusa to work. So they ransack Guy McFace's yes. little hidden treasure trove of like weaponry. Well, there is a great line in there when when bad Guy McFace goes to Hugo Weaving and he's like, I'm a friend of your daughter's. And he goes, no, you're not. <laughs> and I'm, like, I'm like, oh, okay. I don't know why we needed that established. <laughs> All right, movie, you have two things. You have the spoiled <laughs> ricotta cheese in the can and you have that line. You got two things going for you. I'm sure you know who I am. No, I don't. Herbert Melifant. Your daughter's a very good friend of mine. No, she's not. Yeah. Um, and then we have that. So we have all the weaponry. But then we have Woman McFace and Engineer McGuy. And they have, like, in what the curator of the museum's like, whatever. Like, oh, God, he has another line. And he says, like, whatever's happening in there has no, a God has no role in it. Mm-hmm. And that, and I'm like, God damn, this movie. God yep, damn yep. this movie thinking it's clever. Good old Chudley they... Pomeroy. <laughs> <laughs> His first name is Chudley. Chudley. <laughs> what the hell is that? <laughs> oh my god. Um all right. So we have It's a that. Willy Wonka name. Isn't that like uh, like I feel like in the first draft of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or Willy Wonka, whatever the roll doll book is actually called, it was like before it was Augustus Gloop, it was Chudley Pomeroy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, you're right. This is this is Twilight level. Like this is this is this is a Twilight level film, just made on a bigger budget. <laughs> um so they, they go all the way to the cathedral, then they go all they see what Hugo Weaving's doing, yep. and then Woman McFace is like, he's not my father anymore because of how evil he is. Mm-hmm. And then they go all the way back to the museum. Then she goes, I can't like stand by and let this happen. So she goes all the way back. A lot of stairs. A lot of cardio she's getting. (laughs) Then she chews out Hugo Weaving and he's like, ah, ah. And then she inexplicably goes to the control room of London. And I guess Hugo Weaving was predict predicted this yes. so he has his like firing squad murder everybody in the control room and jam go- the engines yeah and jam the engines because they have clearly an old-timey steamship whatever it's called where it's like full steam ahead full yes. stop yeah the lever thing yeah yes <laughs> and so we have that 
And the whole time, out of nowhere, Gal McFace gets in contact with Guy McFace. And while all this is happening, Engineer McFace just disappears from the film. Oh, yeah. Bevis is just gone until the very end when we see him coming out of the wreckage of London. <laughs> and so he, Guy McFace tells Gal McFace, who's, who's at the helm, turn off London. No, it's going full steam ahead. We are destroying. I think Hugo said Hugo Weaving says at one point, "We are destroying that wall one way or another." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he wants to break through and eat all those cities in there. Yep. <laughs> yes, despite the fact he'll destroy London in the process. But hungry, hungry cities. We need a board game adaption. Of this. <laughs> <laughs> hungry, hungry cities. Immortal Engines board game. <laughs> um. So we have that. So she goes. I forget how they figure out how to destroy the city. But they figure out, oh, if we open the city up, mm-hmm. Guy McFace can fly the ship into the into the city's core, much like Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom yeah. Menace, yeah, and destroy it from the inside. Um, it's blowing up from the inside. None of our ships have hit it. There's one of ours coming out of the main hold, and Guy McFace comes out, woohoo! And yeah. we have that as this thing blows up from the inside. Despite the fact that it's never explained how any of them know this will work. It, yeah. Yeah. Because Tom is not an engineer. He's a historian. Catherine is a historian. She's the daughter of the lead historian. And the ship he's flying, the Jenny Hanover, he's only known for one day, probably less. But hey, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's going to work. Folks, when in doubt, just fly your giant flying contraption inside a giant mechanism to shoot. Nothing bad can happen. Yes, and and while this is happening, Hester Shaw and Hugo Weaving are having their showdown on top of his ship. Where the movie reveals that Hugo Weaving is her father. Yes, which (laughs) which, unless you were born like brain dead, you saw coming from the very first flashback. Yep, Uh, here's something that might blow you away. There is no mention of this in the book. Oh, really? It is not revealed until a sequel that he is her father. So it is in the books, but I was waiting for it in in Mortal Engines, the first book, and it never happens. Does Hugo Weaving die in the first book? Yes, uh, he dies because in the book, London explodes. Oh. Like London in, in its entirety gets destroyed, which does not happen in this book. It just becomes stationary. Oh, geez, we can't have that. Yeah, so he does die in the book, yes. And then um, uh, something else, some, another person who dies in the book, Catherine dies as well, because Hugo Weaving stabs her. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. oh, yeah, definitely. What, 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 what does she do in this? Does she just walk up to the giant wall city and like, like hey, what's up, trick or treat? She's like, I survive. I, I survived somehow. <laughs> yeah, she uh, she dies in the in the book, and she's actually like a huge part of the book. I was talking before about like the guilds and stuff. Like there's an entire subplot, like the whole way that Medusa and that Hugo Weaving has access to it is revealed is through Catherine, like doing the investigation all throughout London, going to all the different guilds with Bevis. And then they're just like, oh, the movie people, the adapters are just like, oh, three scenes. That's enough, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And what if it happens to bad guy McFace? What happens to him? He in in the movie. In the movie, he lives. He's we see him getting off stationary London with Bevis and Chudley Pomeroy at the end. Oh, okay. After a while, they all when you have more than like yes. two of them in the same scene together, it's like it's the same person. Yeah, and they're carrying, they're like helping an old man that we've never seen anywhere else in the movie. Also, and it makes no sense. 
<sighs> here's here's my question. So also another difference between the book and the movie. Uh, in the movie, as we talked about, Medusa and London get two shots off on the wall. Never happens in the book. Catherine's able to divert London before they shoot the wall at all, which which works. I like that because in the movie, I'm like, there's a giant hole in the wall. London's not the only traction city. What's stopping all these small traction cities from just going in there and fucking shit up now? Right? <sighs> Rob, there can't be another city. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to allow it. No more cities. There's, no there's more. a few cities that they go to in the book that are completely cut from the movie. There's a whole pirate town that they go to in the book that it's called something ridiculous, like pirate town or like it's, it's pirate town with some extra vowels or something. <laughs> Oh, God, even that like final battle sequence, like showdown between Hugo Weaving and Hester Shaw, even that is just like it's like, can we just end this? Mm, yeah, yeah. I was like, come on, because she this movie's even... a little over two hours. Please go faster now. Because like she doesn't even kill him. She kind of just like she's like, I forgive you, right? Or he goes yeah. into the bowels. He goes into the bowels of the ship. And it just crashes. Yeah, because she she's there. He's doing the whole thing where he's like, "Come on!" He's like, "Give in to your hate," and she drops the knife, and she's like, "No, I can jump onto this ship with Tom." And then it crashes, and he gets crushed by London. <laughs> yeah. Oh God! It's called the pirate town. It's called Turnbridge Wheels in the book. Of course it is. And the well. mayor of Turnbridge Wheels is Chrysler Peavy. <laughs> Screw this movie. <laughs> okay, well, we've been talking a lot about names, and now we're, now we're getting more into the difference between the book and the film. Uh, something that I, I think I almost had an aneurysm when I was reading. Catherine, completely cut from the movie, Catherine Valentine has a pet dog, and it's kind of like, that's the trio. It, it's her, Bevis, and the dog. Like, that's the little subplot with her and the guilds and stuff. I, I am not fucking kidding you zach with all the insane names in this movie this book this universe and everything we're talking about the name of her pet dog is dog <laughs> i almost we... had an aneurysm when yeah, i read oh I, I remember that didn't was that earlier in the film like doesn't don't we see the dog very briefly in Does, the movie i i don't, I don't know all that at all I, 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 I might be hallucinating oh, this but I could have sworn we see a dog in the beginning of the film. Like I, I don't like, remember. I, I don't put it. I wouldn't put it past the movie to have a quick, like half frame shot of a dog. But I, I know it's definitely not said that its name is Dog in the film. <laughs> but for some reason, that seems familiar, and I don't know why. Okay, okay. Well, yeah. In the book, her pet dog is like her sidekick with Bevis, and, and its name is Dog. What the fuck, Philip Reeve, man? What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Cocaine's a hell of a drug. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yeah, It it's insane. But everything, all's well that ends well. I mean, everybody seems happy, even though the goddamn wall's blown open. And, like, gotta be the... So the city at the wall is... Um, oh, it's, it's so hard to pronounce. It was one of those things that every time I read it, I just glazed over it because it's stupidly difficult. It, it's Batmunk Gompa. That's the name of the city that they go to and, like, try to tell the dude where he's like, hey... This this London's going to attack you, and the dude's like, "Oh, we don't think it's going to happen." <laughs> That's Batmunk go Gompa. Rolls on the tongue. Oh yeah, of course. Oh god, Bevis Batmunk. Oh jeez. So and then and then that's it. Hester and uh, Hester and Tom fly away on the Jenny Hanover, and they got to find somewhere to go. They got to have more fun adventures, right? Because this movie's clearly going to have a sequel. 
<sighs> Yikes. Yikes. Oh, oh, God. Do you have anything else to say about the movie? There were a few other things I did want to point out that the movie cut that I found interesting in some respect. <laughs> no, nah, nothing really. The only thing else I want to talk about the movie is uh, the Blu-ray, the, the Blu-ray oh, packaging. Cause that's sure. Just, I want to read the description. Tell me. I want you to tell me if this is an apt description of uh, the film. But we'll get to that once you do your differences. Okay, okay. So I mentioned a lot of them already. Like Hester's scars, her face is really mangled in the book, which is I thought was interesting. Um, there's a whole, like... There's like three pages dedicated to Tom purchasing and giving the red shawl to Hester. Like Hester just has it in the movie, but it's actually like a a, a point of affection between them when before oh, okay. they really like know each other. And so, you know, that like she has like an iron mask or something before that because she wants to cover her face. Um, like I said, the shield wall never gets destroyed. Uh, Bevis and Catherine die in the book. Talked about that. Uh, no mention of the father. London's destroyed. Uh, Shrike's and captured by London. I mentioned it early, but Valentine is, is much more of a fleshed out character. He's not the main antagonist. The mayor is in the book. Um, the guilds and stuff like that. 60 minute war. Um, I think the, the biggest thing that's left to discuss is something that they changed for the spectacle of the movie. The airships in the book are glorified hot air balloons. There is no jet propulsion period in any of the ships in the book. While in here, they're goddamn Star Wars fighters in the yes. movie. And I hated that because it was clearly when I'm watching the movie after reading the book, it's like, oh, they need the big, you know, like Zach said, the trench run, storming London. They got to get all the people of the anti-tractionists to do their distractions and shoot the gunners and turrets. But it's it's actually interesting in the book where they're, they're, there's just that's how I think Philip Reeve like fits in the character development, because when Tom and Hester like leave the um or get rescued by Anna Fang from the slave auction, they're just like, we have to wait. Like, we have to just hope this ship gets us there because we can barely steer a hot air balloon. And it just gives them time to breathe and talk about things. Where in the movie, it's just like, nope, we could just teleport, basically. So yeah. that was something that I thought was like, yeah, they did it for the spectacle. And fuck you, movie. You know, give us something a little, something we haven't seen before. Please. Novelty is a good thing sometimes. Hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, cardboard cutouts can't can't cardboard promote. cutouts. And so, with with the differences being said, um, you can. I also want to go into where the th I didn't like. I said I didn't read them. I didn't read the full synopses. I just tried to do the cliff notes of the f following books because I, like I said, I didn't really enjoy the book or the movie. Um, Anna Fang gets turned into a stalker. Oh, I guess I should say there's a lot more stalkers in the book. Like it's not just Shrike. There's all these weird like stalkers that are remnants of of like. Uh, dilapidated traction cities and stuff. But Anna Fang gets turned into a stalker. Um, the second book is about Tom and Hester again, but the third and fourth books are after a time jump, and it, the main character is Tom and Hester's daughter. Uh, oh, boy. Whose name is Ren, W-R-E-N. Um, so, like I said, also, the sequels reveal that Hester was the daughter of Thaddeus Valentine, um, that comes up a lot more in like how because uh, she's like conflicted. It seems that she like you know had so much hate against him, but she didn't really know the whole story. Um, London gets rebuilt in the later books because it is destroyed in the book. And the person, get ready for this, Zach. You're gonna love it. The person who heads London after its rebuilding is Chudley Pomeroy. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> so he becomes a bigger character. But the thing that stood out to me a, a big time. Like I said already, in the book, Shrike only gets deactivated. He's a character in all the other books. But the, from what I've read, the fourth book, 
literally ends with a time jump into where Shrike is deactivated after the events of all four books, and some town, not attraction town, like a stationary town, basically has Shrike just standing still in the middle of town square because they think it's a statue. Like, they don't know. Like, it's so far in the future that they don't know that it's this this cyborg robot type thing. And, the like, the epilogue of the whole series is Shrike reactivates somehow. I didn't read how. And he basically questions, like, thousands of years into the future. And he questions what the hell happened. He's been deactivated for so long. And the people kind of tell him what happened since the the last chapter of the fourth book. And he turns around and goes, well, let me tell you the story of these books. And that's the framing device for all of mortal engines. Yes. It's so fucking stupid at Shrike, the goddamn cyborg that can see emotions is retelling events that he was not present for. I hate it. But Shrike is like the hero. He's like the main character of everything. Well, even we even mentioned, I think we kind of slightly mentioned that we get what the narration by him over the credits. Yes, he's the sixty. He's the when he's the first voice we hear cramming information at us. Yep. Ugh. Sixty minutes was all it took for the world to destroy itself. Do you get it yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Here's two more hours of information. Ugh. <laughs> <sighs> Oh god. But yeah, that's so that's I have no desire to read any of the other books. It is it's it's young adult, which you know I I'm into. You know, I I will always love series of unfortunate events. I have no problem reading young adult books, uh, as evidenced by Galaxy of Fear from Knights of Vader. I'll read anything. I'm usually not gonna like things that are fiction these days, just for my tastes have changed. But this it was young adult wackiness to the maximum. And I, I will give it a little bit of credit. You know, this uh, 2001 was when the first book came out. It was a much different time than it is now, before our Twilights and things like that. But it just, it was real easy to read. It didn't make sense. It was a big kind of like, here's just jargon and stuff. Get introduced to this world. And it, I, I would consider it just, it's what young adult authors were banking in on back in those times. Because how I knew about Mortal Engines or had heard about it was when I was younger, I read the Edge Chronicles and the Edge, or some of the Edge Chronicles, and that was another kind of very steampunk, you know, floating cities and all this stuff. Um, and I remember at like one of those scholastic book fairs from elementary school, it was like, oh, you like this book, you'd like this book, and that's where Mortal Engines came into play. And it's just like that's what they were all doing. They were all riding off the high of Harry Potter. Just hey, pick a universe, throw kids into it, and they're some kids are going to latch onto something. And it's so cheap to publish and produce young adult novels, especially yeah. back then, that it was just a cash grab. And it's like TV shows on weird streaming services you never heard of these days. They just pump them out, and they're like, oh, we get some audience. It's going to make its money back. We're fine. And it, I, I just don't like that style. Um, I, I didn't look into Philip Reeve a lot. I don't really know if he was you know, into this book a lot. I don't really know him as a writer. But I, I from what I've read and what I've seen in this movie, it just kind of seems like, hey, throw it at the wall, see if it sticks. And then, you know, hey, maybe in 18 years, they're going to turn it into a movie and I can really rake in the big bucks. Rob, you're telling me they didn't think about certain things when they were making this film? Uh, No, I think they thought about nothing. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely shows in the final product. I, I like I like to imagine that like on like subsequent edits of this of the script and the drafts of the script, just seeing notes in the margins, more Hester Shaw. (laughs) <laughs> like mean more of the character no 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 more people saying her name i think every character in this movie says her name at least once <laughs> hey, 
Uh, I wouldn't put it past them. I really <laughs> wouldn't. Hester Shaw. So yeah, that's, that's, Shaw. that's all I got. I think the next thing I'm ready for is our questions. I guess the one thing we didn't talk about uh, that I did want to ask you, Zach, was the reports say... This movie lost about $175 million. You are our truth seer for these types of things. Is that the case, or is this just some wonky... We know it lost money. It was a bomb. Sure. But is this, is this $175 million losing that money? Was that? Do you think there's truth to that, or do you think that's just uh, someone trying to estimate some nonsense? No, well, that sounds correct, based on like in the budgets in the range of $100 to $150 million. Um, I, this feels like it probably was even more expensive, but who knows with certain tax credits and where they filmed it. Let's be, let's let's say around 150. Okay. So you figure the, the rule of thumb in Hollywood is usually have to make two to three times your budget to just be in the black. Yeah. Um, to break even. So if it's 150 million, you're talking about you having to get to at least 400 million at least. Yeah. And I believe not more. It took in a, a little over 80 million. <laughs> yeah, I I, I think. I think it probably was one of the biggest financial disasters of all time. Oh, yep, yep. And uh, it's, it's really weird because it's kind of like, you know, almost the uh, – something like an inverse of Vanilla Sky where we were like, how the hell did this crazy movie make so much money? Where this is like it made – it lost an insane amount of money and we totally understand why. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we can see it and everybody could see it immediately. You know what the weird thing about I, I guess Universal also knew they had dud on their hands because this this really got put into like uh, the lion's den because last December when this got released mm -hmm. there was so much like big like big spectacle fair at, like in the holiday season. Oh yeah. It was the, it was the first time there wasn't a Star Wars film out in, in the holiday corridor. So you had Aquaman Mary Poppins Returns, Bumblebee, Spider-Verse. You had all these like huge tentpole movies that were all vying for like people's attention. And the only one that really out and out succeeded was Aquaman. Mm -hmm. Cause like I think we I think I talked about it. Like Aquaman's another movie that's genuinely insane. But at least it's 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 weird. Aquaman would make a very interesting double feature with this. Like this would have been a fun like back in oh, like God. December of 2018. You go see like Aquaman first, and you see this as a juxtaposition of like doing like zany, insane, right, and then doing it so wrong. Because I remember even telling Rob when I saw Aquaman like last well God like uh, in December of 2018. Um, it really is like it's like all this crazy stuff is happening, and it's stupid, but it makes sense. Sure. Like like, like the climax of that movie is. Is oh god, oh, what's his name? Patrick Wilson on um, like an art, like riding an army of sharks fighting the crab people. Oh, yeah, and, and then and then uh, oh god, oh my god, I can't think of her name. Original Mary Poppins, Julie Andrews is mm. like a giant, like Kraken monster that Aquaman is riding. Like, it's it's insane. <laughs> <laughs> but it yeah, makes, I've, I've never seen it, but I've heard about it, and Zach's told me, and it seems like it is insane. It's, yeah. it's, it's a coherent mess. Okay, where this is an incoherent mess. Yes, because sure. it's, like, it's, it's again, you th it's like okay, Aquaman. You have it's the same sort of thing. You have all this like heavy mythology, and you have to do it all underwater and make it not hokey. Yeah, this at least has the the angle of at least steampunk is one of those things that we've never really seen in live action before on a big scale. Mm -hmm. So you have like a novelty factor here that you really think would be not easy to exploit, but at least it's an angle. 
and they make it so so hard for people to get get into yeah yeah absolutely and i I guess also i should say some people that i i was reading you know uh kind of you know what did people who liked the book think about the movies and it seems like that's almost the same thing people like the book still like the book and they're like what the hell did this movie do you know yeah yeah i i can't imagine reading these books like 15 years earlier and then going into this and having jc penny like yeah models be like okay here we go yeah, that that was one of the things that all the all like the blog posts and forum things and people talking about it. I read they were like, they messed up Hester's face. Like Hester is supposed to be disfigured. Like that's a key point to her character. And it was like, oh, you know, everybody has to be pretty in this movie. We'll give her a little a little scrape on the chin in this one, and she just wants revenge. That's her character now. Ooh, one dimensional. And it's like, once again, squandered potential. It kind of reminds me. I don't think Rob ever watched it yet. Was Ready Player One with the, oh. the lead actress, and she has like, like, because again, she's she's like the weird alien in the internet land, and then like the main character sees her in real life, and she's like, "Don't look at me, I'm hideous." And the actress is gorgeous. All she has is like a birth, <laughs> like, like a birthmark the size of like a quarter, like on her cheek, and it's like, no, yeah, exactly, no, that's not that's not how reality works. Like a gorgeous woman with a slight, slight like blemish on her face is not going to turn off any man mm-hmm. yeah the beauty marks that's what they're even called these days it's it's weird I, okay one thing i do want to point out is that when this movie came out in december 2018 as rob knows i am very big on regal rewards they have like yes. swag and stuff for the movies they had <laughs> oh mortal, they had mortal engine swag i'm laughing at what it could be <laughs> my mind well, is racing <laughs> one of them is i forget i only remember two of them i think there i think there was some more but the first one was i think they had a pocket watch with like the, the mortal engines logo which was okay. which is kind of neat like a pocket watch like, if it's worth it like, in the sense like if it's, if it's if it actually like does what it's supposed to, that's kind yeah, of yeah, steampunky element to it. So it fits. yeah, but the best one was Hester Shaw's scarf. Oh my god! <laughs> that that I, I can't believe that the the hot Halloween costume of last year was not Hester Shaw. <laughs> that's great. It's, it, it was. And I'm like, I remember seeing that. Because I know, because it, even in the teaser trailer from December 2017, her red scarf is, like, so pronounced. Yeah, it's it's the and, like the main thing in the poster is her face yeah. with, it cut with the red yeah. shawl on it. Yeah. It was a huge part of the marketing. And I remember seeing that being like, why are you going to use, like, your regal points, which are, like, ins- I don't want to say insanely inspe- like, like expensive, but still. Where you can go to any department store and just buy a red scarf for like fifteen dollars. Yeah, I'm even thinking like the one you get from the Regal Rewards. If you machine wash it, it's gonna fall apart. <laughs> I guess I should say that this was years ago. That when John Wick Chapter Two came out, they had Regal Rewards, and they didn't have a lot of good ones. But that was this was back when I was able to get everything for free. So I they had a. John Wick Chapter 2 necktie and what it is is it's just a b- solid black necktie. That's all <laughs> is it, it is. Is it like clip-on or a real tie? No, it's a real tie. It's, okay, you have to okay. tie it. But the best part of it is is that there's a little tag on the inside of it that says John Wick Chapter 2. Mm-hmm. But it's 
it was stitched incorrectly so it's at an angle. So like you know like when you tie a tie and you have the piece that you can stick in the back like behind the tag so it stays in one place. Yeah, the loop. Do, yeah. The, you can't even stick it in there cuz it's so cockeyed how it was stitched. <laughs> oh so, so I can only imagine for the Mortal Engines uh, Hester Shaw scarf that the little like embroidery that says Mortal Engines on it cuz clearly it would have to have some piece of the marketing yeah. to let you know where it's from is just as awkwardly placed on the garment. Oh, that's great. That, that, oh my God. Now I want it. <laughs> I wonder what you'll find on eBay, the, the mortal engine scarf. Jeez. Yeah. Another, another thing to have on display in the restaurant next to oh, we'll get, Orson Wells. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that, Rob. Yes. Yes. I, I guess, I guess we should say as we've, uh, we've really dunked on this movie quite a bit because it is well worth dunking on. Uh, it should be said that there is at least one person that likes this movie and zach and i both know him my father liked this movie <laughs> both surprising and unsurprising at the same time yep yep saw it on hbo a few weeks back maybe a month when it came on and i i remember my parents were telling me he's like oh mortal engines and i was like this movie makes no sense and they watched it and i remember asking my dad and he's like it was great and my dad for reference just like spectacle that's it. <laughs> That's all he wants. And the machinery is a great touch it. as well. He got everything he wanted from this movie. Did you know they made Funko Pops of, of what? They have Anna Fang, oh Valentine, Guy McFace, and there was a Hot Topic exclusive of Hester Shaw. No Chudley Pomeroy? No Chudley Pomeroy. That's, that's the only one I would want. I just want the box that says Chudley Pomeroy. <laughs> just today, a listing sold for those four characters. We don't know the exact amount, but the the the, the price was twenty two ninety nine, and the best offer was taken. So chances are you can get these at a discount if you're so inclined. Okay, I I, I would. I would love to have like not a Funko Pop, but like maybe like a like a twelve inch or, or maybe a slightly smaller figure of Shrike. And just have it in like a public place in my apartment or like in an office. So people would be like, I love the Terminator movies. <laughs> and you have to explain to them that it's not a Terminator every time. <laughs> you know what the weird thing is? Like, there's not even a strike Funko Pop, I don't think. Jeez. I yeah, see that's... a lot. I see Valentine, Anna Fang. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of it. Damn. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if there is one of him, I haven't, I haven't seen it's a it yet. bummer. That's a bummer. All right. What do you, what do you got? Zach has a physical copy of this movie. Um, I, I think, you know, as, as we, we talked about off mic for Gili, what do you say? It's the, the anthrop anthropological necessity of owning it. It's not because yes. you like it. It's just, you need it for, for completion. I, I have to admit though, I kind of regret this one though. This is one of those ones where like, do I really need that? Like, like after watching it, I'm like, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, it's like the Larry David meme. It's like, or like the GIF where it's like, eh. yeah, sure. <laughs> it's, it's like, eh, I, I kind of need it, but do I really? Um, all right. So this is, this is the description on the back of the box. Okay. Tell me if you think this is an app description from the mortal engines. Visionary filmmaker, Peter Jackson presents a startling new adventure. Unlike any you've seen before <laughs> hundreds of years after our civilization was destroyed, a new world has emerged. A mysterious young woman named Hester Shaw leads a band of outcasts in the fight to stop London. Now a giant predator city on wheels from devouring everything in its path. Is that it? That's it. That's, that's, like it. The, that's like the last act of the movie. 
<laughs> and she doesn't even really lead them. She just Anna Fang leads them. I would say she's just in there because she has the crash drive, mm-hmm. which anybody could kill her and take from her. Yep. Okay. Yeah. No good. No good marketing. And the Peter Jackson thing right off the bat, you had me. You had me going at a no. <laughs> it's not very descriptive. All right, Rob. For for the low low price of twenty nine dollars, we can get a four by six foot poster of Mortal Engines. Oh, is it like the uh, the same as the like the po- uh, theatrical in the DVD cover, like with Hester's face and that stuff? No, it's even better. It's her holding a gun with a scarf, and it's like black and white, and there's like a tread mark in the background. What? <laughs> and, so, and the tagline <laughs> is something. Some wait. What's it? What's the tagline? Some some blank never heal. Wounds, maybe scars, maybe scars. Yeah, scars. Yeah, it's scars. It, it, however, they took the picture. It's all like that part of it's like bleached out in the image. Oh god, they could even do that right. <laughs> some scars never heal. Yep. Isn't that like what the point of a scar is? Doesn't like scars only heal heal up to a certain point type of thing? Don't question it, Rob. <laughs> That's yeah. This movie makes no sense it is incomprehensible great way to end the incomprehensible blockbuster series at least for this one i'm sure we have plenty more if we ever want to revisit incomprehensible blockbusters all right so i'm going through all the sold listings of mortal engines because i'm trying to see if that scarf has ever been available on ebay sure um so far the most expensive mortal engines item i've been able to find is that the actress that plays Catherine. I guess Leela George D'Onofrio. Yes. Oh, we didn't. Yeah, we didn't even mention she's uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's daughter. Okay. <laughs> it's the most expensive item. And it's a signed picture of her, an eight by ten photo, and it's her wearing a very, very like like a see through cleavage dress. Okay. How much did it go for? Forty four dollars. Forty four. That better have been. You said eight by ten, right? Yep. That better be in feet for $44. Like, this better be a banner on the side of a building. $44? You can buy at least, like, three or four, like, sets of the pops for that price. <laughs> oh, God. Imagine being that bored to buy a signed photo of a no-name actress. Yeah, I'm just imagining someone buys it, and then it's like, okay, I gotta get Vincent D'Onofrio to sign this, and maybe he will, because it's his daughter. <laughs> then oh, it'll be worth something. Correction, the most expensive item now I've seen, 2018 Mortal Engines Anna Fang cosplay movie replica trench coat. The red one? Mm-hmm. Oh, God. It's not, is it, is it even like a prop from The Matrix? No. Who no, worn, no one wore red in the Matrix, right? Oh, they were all like the, well, the, the gang, the, like Switch the one, and all them. Wasn't it the one woman that the what the, the the woman that the woman in the red dress that Mouse created? True, she was wearing red. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Maybe maybe it's the, they were. I, I don't know. I don't even know where I'm going anymore at this point. <laughs> all right, I, am, I am running out of traction. City steam. Jeez. <laughs> oh, but yes, uh, that's that's it for Mortal Engines, folks. Uh, truly, the, the most incomprehensible of the blockbusters. Oh yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. It, a great way to f- to finish off this series and to bring us in to episode one hundred triple digits. This is totally going to work well for syndication. After this, there will be no there'll be no more cinematics. You better enjoy it. <laughs> All right, are we ready for our questions then? I am ready. Okay. Where do you want to start? Snacks last uh, or first? Uh, let's, no, let's do snacks last. Okay. okay. Um, all right. Cinemati. Of course, it's a cinemati. 
late night movie, I have to go no because you'll fall asleep through it. Oh, fair, fair. I, uh, I, I totally agree with you on late night. Um, this would be painful for all parties involved. Like, no one's going to understand it. I, and of course, we talked about late night stuff. People are, you know, going to be on their phones because everybody sucks and you can't get them to watch anything. And I think that phones are not this one. They're going to be like, I have no idea what's going on. I want to do anything else. And it's not even like, you know, a bad movie where we can laugh at certain things. You know, it's like you really have to you really have to hate this movie to get some enjoyment, like you have this type of conversation from it. It's not going to work out well for for a late night movie environment. Cinemodities, though, I think I think we're going to be split. I'm I'm leaning towards a no, because while yes, this movie is c- completely incomprehensible, I feel that it's for a reason that we've seen before, or maybe not on Cinemodities, but it's happened time and time and again. They tried to jam way too much into this movie and failed at it. And to me, I, I don't think that's it is incomprehensible, but it's not Cinemodities status for me. I feel like. We're going to see it again in our lifetime, lifetimes with other book adaptions or, or adaptions of some kind where they're not going to be able to pull it off and they're going to squander potential. So I'm going to go with no for Cinemodities. That's fine. I, I'm, I don't care about this movie enough to argue about it. <laughs> um, but the only thing- like this is this is fine. We could be split. Let it end. <laughs> I'll keep my powder dry for when it really matters. Um, all you have to say about this though is the idea that like just how blatantly bland it is. That like it just feels like nobody cared. Like there must have been some point in this where it's just like it's just the fact that it's so on the surface, just like it, incomprehensible. Like we talk about other movies, like think of all the other movies we talked about this month. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that like even Gili, Gili is a strange probably one of the strangest films ever made. And yet it makes sense. It feels like yeah. people tried. Like as much as a meathead that Ben Affleck plays in it and J Lo is just being sexy because that's what she was at the time. It makes sense. It feels like everybody's at least trying. Okay. This is a movie that feels like nobody's trying. And that's the strange like usually in most like uh it's okay, it's like any like blockbuster film. You feel bad, like hoping for something like that to fail because so many people, like, I think of the thousands of people that work trying to bring this movie to life. But there are people, like, there's so many behind the scenes people that you feel bad for. And yet, with something like this, there's like no, like, I guess every uh, incomprehensible blockbuster we've talked about in this series, even the failed blockbusters from last year, every one of them has some, like, redeemable element to them. Yeah. This doesn't have anything. Like, there's really, there's nothing of substance here. That's yeah. the problem. It's so hollow. Like, I think I said it in, earlier in this episode. Like, I, this is my bread and butter, a $200 million, and I know the budget's less than that. But still, it's a nine-figure budget disaster. And it's like, eh? Yeah, yeah, like like we quoted from Tim Roby, mechanical, soulless, dystopian theme park ride to nowhere. Yep, it's vacuum. Yeah, and that's the problem. Like even like Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, incomprehensible, but at least it's a romp. This is just miserable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like imagine like doing a bump of cocaine. You're like, this is this is a bad high. It's like imagine. <laughs> It's like it's like someone's like, oh man, you want some of my coke? Sure. And it's as if somebody mashed up a bunch of Ambien. It's like this isn't fun. This is this isn't this isn't what I want to do on my weekend. Yeah, fair, fair point. Fair it's kind of like I, I know we talked about it in Nights of Air, but we didn't really talk about it on here. It's like cats. It's the worst kind of cinematic. It's bizarre, but it's boring. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that maybe, maybe again, it, it does belong here because just how over the top goofy it is at times. Just like just how like just what it decides to do. Again, Hugo weaving the wall. Uh, Hester Shaw, Uncle Daddy Terminator. It has all these weird elements, yet they're just there. Like it's yeah, just, they all they all just they're, they're there just at face value, and that's it. Yeah, like it's like, yep. it's, even, it's even it's just even a fun movie to laugh at while you're watching. It's only funny exactly. like after the fact when someone's like, oh, like it's, it's a fun movie to discuss because of how horrible it is, but it's not fun to watch. Yeah, 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 and that's exactly what I was getting at with the late night. Like, you're not going to get anything from anybody while watching this movie. It's going to be painful, absolutely. I guess, I guess I should say that, like, even though I guess it's a cinematic, it's a very like, okay. In the spreadsheet, this is how I want it labeled. Okay, it's 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 as unenthusiastic and superficial of a cinematic as the movie is itself and what it's trying to get at. <laughs> my my recommendation for it being a cinematic is as much. Is it is it with as much effort as the filmmakers put into the source material? I I like that. I like that. <laughs> so it's kind of like a weird one where it's like it's not indeterminate, but it's like the zero amount of just oomph. It's like like Rob's like Zach Cinemati status, and I'm like, eh. eh. Okay. Yeah, that's it. I like that. I like that for sure. The absolute bare minimum, bare minimum of recommendation. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't watch this movie. Even if you've read the book and liked the book, I don't think you'll like this movie from no. from me and what I've read. Other people who like who read the whole series, you know. Remember, folks, the tagline of the poster should have been not that some scars don't heal. It should have been think of all the starving children you could have fed. <laughs> oh God! Yep. All right, snack time. Restaurant. Snack time. We got to work on the restaurant. Okay, I um. I think I have one that might encompass some of yours, but we do get to see some food in this movie. Whether or not you can classify it as food half the time, we don't really know. But uh, so so I wanted to draw an inspiration from that. But I want to start with the name. So just like, you know, we have some places like uh, you think of like sandwich shops and diners. Maybe they'll have a, a sandwich or a meal or dish that's named after a person. Like, for some reason, the example that's coming to mind is uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. There's the Larry David sandwich episode. So there's a sandwich called the Larry David. And, like, they go to this restaurant where it's all, like, there's the Seinfeld and all that stuff. What about we have a, a, a dish that's called the Hester Shaw, which is weird gray slop from a can, as Zach described as the um, whatever it was earlier. So that's, like, kind of the main part of it. As uh, drinks, you have algae tea. And dirty yes, groundwater, yes. because we never mentioned that Hester Shaw guarantees dysentery when she drinks dirty <laughs> groundwater. Like that's a scene. There's a close-up of the camera. She digs a little bit of dirt away with her hand and then drinks muck water. It's disgusting. Like that's beaver fever. You're getting instantly. And then as dessert, you have twink. <laughs> so it's it's weird gray slop from a can with dirty groundwater and algae tea and Twinkies for dessert. The Hester Shaw. <laughs> well, I, I was going to, okay, you, you took a lot of that from me and what I was going to do. But the only thing I want to do is that at one point when they're at the auction, they're auctioning off Hester Shaw. Someone says something like, I can make a fine slab of salami out of her. Yeah, so, uh, that, I did like that because the, um, she comes up for auction and the, the auctioneer is looking at her in disgust because her face is supposed to be mangled. And he says something like, cheer up, love. You'll look considerably better as a roll of salami. Yep. This one is a real swamp donkey and priced accordingly. <laughs> I have ten quirks. Three. 
Oh, you stingy bastard, DeGroot. You could do better than that. I'm fully aware of the exorbitant margins currently enjoyed by the sausage-making sector. <laughs> five quirks and she's yours. Four. Four quirks on my left, do I hear five? Cheer up, love. You look considerably better as a roll of salami. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I want that. I want the Hester Shaw salami. We might think of a different name, maybe for the uh, the 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 cottage, like the spoiled cottage cheese and ricotta coming out of the can. Sure. Um, maybe we can call it like the Strike Delight or something. Some some, some name like that. Okay, okay. But the, the Hester, Hester Shaw, the meat, like the meat or the main yes. part of the dish, would be Hester Shaw salami. Yes. And what we do is we wrap a, a piece of a red fabric around the salami, so you know it's <laughs> Hester Shaw. <laughs> See, I love that. I feel like we haven't been hitting that the inedible items on our plates at the Cinematis restaurant. If you ever, I feel like you go to any culinary school or watch any cooking show, they're always like everything on the plate needs to be edible. Fuck that at the Cinematis restaurant. <laughs> we want to wrap some salami in fabric and then cook it. <laughs> <laughs> I dig it. Okay, yes. I like that. We'll we'll switch that. So the weird gray slop from a can. The I don't, I don't, I don't, it's like moose, slop moose or something like that. Something the, like that. And so that'll be like the, the Shrike meal. Okay. I can, I can dig that. But Rob, yeah. unless you have anything else, I have a, uh, I have a Trump card for the Cinematis restaurant. Ooh. So, so the only other thing I have for the restaurant, it's not a snack, but it's a mechanism by which we can get employees for the restaurant. Oh. So I started with the thought of, a Shrike walk-around character constantly screaming Hester Shaw. Of course. <laughs> of course. But but I decided we couldn't just do that because let's make use of this killing machine Uncle Daddy Terminator with green eyes while we have him. Of course, we want him to just go around and Hester Shaw constantly. Hester Shaw. But if he catches you, or may, well, I think that's what we can discuss. Does he catch customers? Maybe if it's customers who don't exit the restaurant in a timely fashion, we sick them on their table. Because, you know, in our infinite void, we really need table turnaround. But when Shrike catches these customers, he's going to kill them, turn them into machines, and we're going to use them as employees. That's oh. how we're going to get employees for the restaurant. Because I've, I realize that's something we never really talked about. Who's, who's working here? They, they, to some capacity, have to be emotionless machines to work here, right? <laughs> all right. I, I mean, yes, that. we know they have jizzles and whatnot and, and all those things. But but how are we getting this? Like, Because I didn't want to go with, oh, monster.com. We're going to look for waiters in, <laughs> in, in this crazy work environment, this infinite void that they got to take a ferry to get to and a moat, cross a moat. <laughs> so we, we do it from – we do it. <laughs> I just thought of this. We have – in-house searches for our employees, mm, okay. which are which are done by Shrike killing customers and turning them into machines so they work at the restaurant. I like it, but I think I'm going to expand on it a little bit. Okay, I like it. I like. I it. I'm ready. think much like the lore of Mortal Engines, I think we should become a traction restaurant, <laughs> and I think oh we should on, on the Cinematis Traction Restaurant. We go around and we consume other restaurants. Olive Garden, Outback, your local pizzeria. We consume their resources, and that's how we also get employees' materials. That's how we do it. As soon as you said that, Zach, I'm I'm saying to myself, how the hell did I not think of that? But you are so fucking right. That is amazing. Because that, that would work. It's it's like the, the natural extension of our restaurant 
being like a pop-up restaurant. Like you have all yep. those things in LA where it's just like, oh, it's here, it's there, it's whatever. It's a small restaurant. You got to know where it is. It's, a, it's like an exclusive club. I love this, but we need to discuss how how does an infinite void of space or like okay we can answer it with doctor who logic it's 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 finite on the outside it's infinite on the inside like the like the tardis sure. so so we have a a mobile restaurant eating other restaurants that's fantastic by the way and oh oh god this is great and it's infinite on the inside this is perfect this is perfect we should we could we could have an app that tells people where the restaurant is at any given time, except we we make the app go dark when we're about to eat another restaurant, so they can't use that against us. This is great. This is fantastic. It's we always it. evolving. Uh, the the weirdest shit that we talk about that like we hate uh, just helps us expand the restaurant more than the things we love. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's a that's curse. perfect. That's perfect. So yeah, I like that. We can. You know, maybe it's going to take us some time to build up, like, the, the traction aspect of a restaurant, sure. I would assume, because the restaurant is still a little underground, right? Mars 2112. Something so we have like to that. lift it up and then put traction on it. But in the meantime, we'll get Shrike in there to, to kill some people, turn them into stalkers, and use them as, <laughs> use them as employees. Exactly. So, so... The only question I have then is how do we incorporate the car wash? Is the car wash just going to be like an annex no, I, of the I, I restaurant think, now? I still, I still think that's outside. I think that's still uh, It's still a separate it, entity, and we yes. just kind of always – whenever we need to do yes. dishes, we just stop near a car wash. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> We're not always attraction city. We take breaks. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, we, we slow down. We stop. We give it a break because I, I know that if I was eating in the Cinematis restaurant, I wouldn't want – you know, to constantly be bumping up and down as we're driving over other restaurants, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to have a little serenity during my meal. Uh, as I say this, you know, the serenity is, is bombarded by what the Vox Lux animatronic singing music and the constant, um, the, remember the little shop of horrors feed me table yep. 37. So it's a constant cacophony of noises in the restaurant, but at least you're not like, you know, getting, whiplash or anything or, it, and your food's not sliding everywhere because we're moving around you know at least the vibrations are soothing <laughs> yeah, i love it i love everything about this sack this is perfect <laughs> there we go all righty rob so how are we gonna end this week's episode not a lot of music to discuss from this yeah film. i was i was trying to think of that and that that's another thing we didn't even mention that everything's bland about this movie the score doesn't do anything for me no uh it, it's it's just all kind of Blah. And so, I don't know. I was kind of thinking maybe we take the intro, like the the narration over the studio logo and play that in reverse. Maybe we just go back to good old Cinematis intro in oh reverse. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. nothing how, from that, this nonsense. Oh, my Lord, folks. We broke Rob. He can't find music to extrapolate <laughs> from this. Mortal <laughs> Engines broke Rob. Because I, yeah, I don't want to use any of the music in this. It's all stupid little, you know, nothing. It's like it's, it's everything in the, else in this. It's vacuous. Yep. I don't like it. I don't like, I don't it. like it. All right. Well, folks, check. We'll look forward to not hearing anything at the end of this week's. And maybe that's what we do for a hundredth episode. Maybe we don't play anything. We just end. It just ends. <laughs> or we could throw in a, the, the any way you want it. That's <laughs> hey, kids. Zach's not wrong. Mortal Engines certainly broke Rob. But when the conversation ended and I regained some semblance of sanity, I realized what music could be used to send off this episode. 
We already mentioned that the actor portraying Anna Fang is Jihei, a musician. So enjoy some of her music in reverse at the end. Uh, do we want to say uh, we're, we're doing a new series next week, next month. It's, uh, it's probably going to be a highly divisive series. Uh, unexpected love. Movies that either one, not both, well, kind of both in one case, one of us really loves that people are kind of baffled that we love it. And so we're, we're diving into a little more personal stuff, which is always fun. Zach, Zach knows I like that when I get to talk about things I like. And no, it's not sketch comedy. Everybody calm down. <laughs> or music or Animal Collective or... It's real or movies. Yes, it's real movies, as Zach would call them. It's, it's not Rob Esoteric crap. Yeah, but it, but it should be fun. It should be fun, for sure. A lot of stuff to talk about. It's not Mortal Engines, so we'll be able to make some sense of it, I hope.